When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey, folks, I just want to take a minute to ask you to go and rate this podcast. Uh, let the team house know how you think we're doing. Go and rate us on whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or whatever else. Uh, those ratings really help us out, and we really appreciate the feedback to let us know what you like and what you don't like. And uh, if you do like the team house and you'd like to support us, go check out our Patreon page, and you can actually support the stream and well as get access to our bonus segments and bonus episodes. Yeah, if, if you're going to give us a great review, please do. And if you're going to give us a not-so-good review, why don't you just send us an email and we'll talk about it. <laughs> Special Operations. Covert Ops. Espionage. Covert Ops. The Team House. With your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. Hey guys, welcome to episode 168 of the Team House. I'm Jack Murphy here with David Park. D is here producing. You can see the fumes coming out of his ears currently. And uh, we're here with our guest tonight, Joan Barker. Uh, Joan is a former uh, SOCOM and military contractor uh, doing language training uh, with American and partner forces uh, working in Afghanistan as well. Um, just a little disclaimer before we jump right into it with Joan. Uh, our studio is, believe, this is going to sound crazy, but there is an African evangelical church upstairs. And when they get popping, they really get popping. Um, they're worshiping the Lord like there's no tomorrow. Uh, and God bless them. But you may hear some of the, some of the drum beats uh, over our mic. So I'm just warning you, like, uh, if it gets really gnarly and the background sound becomes too overwhelming and, like, it's just really not fair to Joan, we might have to end the episode early and come back with her and at another her date and, and, and finish the interview. So just a heads up. Hopefully everything goes okay. And Joan, thank you for being a good support with us tonight. <laughs> um, so Joan, um, first off, let's talk about your origin story. We'd like to hear a little bit about like your upbringing and, and how uh, that took you towards eventually governmental service as, as a contractor. 
Bump into a Peace Corps recruiter, really one by second. chance. All right. You start that over. You were muted that entire time. So we're going to get oh. you going again. Uh, that might have been okay. us. I, yeah, I don't think it's on mute now. Is Can you hear me okay? Yes. Yeah, yeah we can. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so, yeah, I was just saying that um, my upbringing in Connecticut and growing up in New England, um, I never had aspirations of going to work overseas from an early age necessarily, but I knew that I wanted to get out and see the world. And I, I just happened to bump into a Peace Corps recruiter by chance on my way out of college. And um, as, as we'll talk about, like the rest of my career was kind of tumbling into different opportunities and seizing them. And so I, I ran into this guy at a job fair and um, he encouraged me to apply to the Peace Corps because I'd studied language in, in college and um, I'd studied French. And so they were looking for some folks to go over to French speaking West Africa. I say that in quotes because I ended up in rural Niger, not using any French. I had to learn Hausa. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, after college, I went into the Peace Corps and I was there for two years um, living and working in rural Niger, um, totally off the grid in a village in the middle of nowhere with no other Americans around. So that was a crash course or maybe a better metaphor for tonight with what's going on upstairs is baptism by fire <laughs> getting uh, dropped off in the middle of nowhere and had to learn language and culture on the fly and um, just arrive out there and, and, and be living and working out in a rural area. And then came back from that with the desire to continue to go back overseas. And uh, I wanted to be able to, to teach language and work with adults on literacy skills and things like that. Um, and I can, that's kind of like the backstory. Uh, later on, I ended up by chance, working on a military base in the UAE and taking a job there. And that's what kind of opened the door to, to doing military language and culture training. Um, but that was much later in like 2011. But there so. was uh, there was a little bit more going on. Uh, you had told us before the show about your father, who's a Vietnam veteran, uh, that was like yes. dead set on making sure that none of his kids joined the military. Yeah, so I mentioned to you guys that my father came back from Vietnam. He was a, he was a corpsman assigned to a combined action platoon in Vietnam and, um, I knew growing up, like he would tell us war stories and he just had like a really, a pretty horrific experience there and lost a lot of his good buddies um, and came home and, and, and struggled hard as a lot of his friends ended up taking their lives, you know, in the seventies and eighties. And so back in the eighties, when the VA first started acknowledging and treating PTSD, he was, he was in that initial wave of folks being treated for it. So we knew like my dad used to call up his buddy, Mark every month and that that was his therapist you know and he was pretty open about that which i thought was pretty cool at the time like my dad had no shame and no stigma about um you know ptsd treatment which was was really cool um he ended up being getting treated for ptsd and then going to work for the state of connecticut as a social worker for vietnam vets and helping vets um find housing and jobs um so that was his career later in life until he retired um for the state so that was my dad was pretty inspirational to me but i was telling you guys that uh yeah he he didn't want any of us enlisting in the military um he just had had such a traumatic experience and and when i grew up that was at the end of the cold war i mean the gulf war was early 90s but um like i was off in college when 9 11 happened so like most of my coming of age was was you know relative peacetime so most people i knew weren't weren't joining up with the military at that time and post 9 11 i knew a lot of folks that that joined um in different ways but um so yeah we just weren't encouraged to to enlist. And I, I told you that he, my father did chase off a military recruiter once I came by our house. I forget which brother he was, he was going for, but I had two, two brothers and a, and a twin sister. And, um, 
so yeah so anyways um but i also had mentioned to you guys that when he did live in vietnam he was living in a village in vietnam like their platoon was out there and so he made friends with these vietnamese folks as well and um he tended to the local populace in the same way that he was a, a corpsman a medic tending to uh to u.s soldiers so he kept in touch with some of those vietnamese folks after the war and we'd see him um getting letters and gifts from vietnam in the mail and he'd make phone calls over there and be like speaking vietnamese and i just thought that was so cool as a little kid i was just like i want to i want to have friends in different countries <laughs> and so even though uh the military wasn't really an encouraged option for us i knew i wanted to get out and, and see the world and, and be doing things like that so that was kind of when when i met that peace corps recruiter i was like if you could put me on a plane <laughs> to to a faraway place and i can go you know experience something like that that would be really really rad so that was kind of how that worked out uh, a book we have here actually on the shelf that I've been meaning to read for a long time called The Barking Deer, a Vietnam veteran wrote. It's supposed to be very, very good. But I was told that when the author brought his book, this novel he wrote about Vietnam, back to the village that he worked in with special forces, that the shaman put it up on the, uh, in the shrine. He had never seen a book before. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Fascinating. Yeah, we, uh, we had um, a combined action platoon Past episode, yeah. On the show, uh, about a year and a half, two years ago, I think. Yeah. And a lot of people, yeah, a lot of people aren't aware of what they did and how these Marines and and corpsmen lived in these villages like like a special forces team. And, you know, uh, yeah, they they had a high rate of efficacy and also a a high rate of, you know, uh, mortality. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but he would tell us about ambushes and stuff. And as a kid, you're just like, Dad, like it doesn't sound like you're supposed to be here. <laughs> like he had so many close calls, like insane stories. But um, yeah. Um so you joined the Peace Corps. Uh, and so you studied French in college. And yeah. then and then what did you say you learned when you were in Nigeria? What's the language official language? Okay. So when we, we I was part of a cohort of about 40 folks and they split us in half. Um Niger has two two operating languages. Um, Hausa is the more widely spoken one. So, so most of us were learning, assigned to learn Hausa. And then there was a cohort of folks assigned to learn a language called Zarma, which is spoken around the capital, Niamey, and in, in, um, in Western Niger. And, and so, um, Dave, you might be more familiar with this, but we had to basically study for two months in the capital city of Niamey and um, get enough language to test out an OPI at a 1-1. So if any any of your listeners have taken a DLI foreign language course and have taken sat for an OPI, we had to hit at least a one. And if you didn't hit a one, you had to stay back and, and continue studying the language because essentially um, in Niger, um, most of the posts were pretty rural. Even the urban posts were, were still kind of off the grid. So you had to be able to be self-sufficient in language. And our RSO made a pretty big point of reminding us that your safety is totally dependent on you and your ability to learn language and culture. That's what's going to save you. And I had some pretty wild stories where like I, I definitely had to uh to get out of some hairy situations and my, my language came in pretty handy but um yeah so I studied Hausa for a couple months and then ended up in a village on the border of Nigeria uh where it was another dialect of Hausa so I had to kind of like, go to the village and like relearn right. their dialect that was like really intense if like Arabic what you said you studied MSA and then you right. had to go learn it the, all the colloquial yeah exactly oh yeah 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 you, so that was pretty intense do you do you want to share any of those any of those uh incidents with us that that 
Well, so the one that people always ask about, and I've, I've shared this one in interviews before, I'll try to give you guys the short version because I know we have like other stuff to move into. But um, when I first got out there to the village, um, I did get really sick with something we used to call faux malaria, where you don't have malaria, but you have all the symptoms, um, sweats and muscle pains and, and, and tightness in the joints. And um, malaria is like obviously very dangerous and deadly and Peace Corps volunteers have died of it before. And so I got that in the beginning and had to kind of explain to the the folks that I lived with in the village um, that I was like really sick and scared. They knew what was going on, but um, I ended up eventually recovering and I was fine and it, it wasn't malaria. But um, I just remember that was like the first experience there where I actually had to use my language because the first month you're kind of like this like baby, like this helpless infant where like all of these people around you are speaking this language that you can't, you can't interact with them. You can't even crack jokes or say you're hungry, you're tired. You're just trying to like listen and get it all in. And then after about a few weeks and a month, like you can start giving language back and conversing. But yeah, so like month two or three was when I got the full malaria and I had to be saying things like, please, if I get really sick and die, make sure like my body gets back to the capital city. Um, (laughs) Another thing, I'm, I'm actually in the middle of writing a collection of short stories about this experience because there are so many of these like really vivid stories that I remember, but, um, my, I lived in a mud hut. Um, this is similar to like folks that have been to like Iraq and Afghanistan may have seen like mud, uh, yards, like concessions with like a mud wall. Mm -hmm. And in that mud wall, the four walls, there's like little family dwellings. And so rural Niger is actually quite like that. Um, so we lived in the Sahel and so it's like a desert region and um, a lot of mud structures. So, uh, I lived in the, like, homestead of the village chief and his his wife and their kids but I had my own little hut but next to my wall was the town cemetery (laughs) the village cemetery and um because I remember when I got there I was like looking around and I asked like you know like what's that out there there was these little like holes um covered in with mud and um like little dirt piles and I didn't know they were graves but I saw these thorn bushes on them and I was like what are those bushes and they're like that's so the animals don't dig up the bodies and that's when I it dawned on me like oh yeah it's a it was a it's a Muslim village they're a conservative Muslim village so as per the custom somebody dies they get you know wrapped up in the shroud and they get buried the same day and um and then they get the thorns put on the grave so the animals cannot dig up the bodies and and ruin the remains but I I, um was had to ask them like do you like if I if something happens to me like are you going to make sure that I go out to the you you go grab the Peace Corps people and tell them they're (laughs) the girl is sick or am I going to end up in like one of the holes out back with a thorn bush like I really didn't know (laughs) yeah but um yeah so like having to have that conversation like in my broken house which was terrible at the time was entertaining but um the funnier story so that's that was kind of a sad serious story but um about a month later, I get bit by a rabid dog. So all the animals out there, like the the dogs, packs of dogs and cats are just feral. And there was a pack of dogs that would often roam the village. And one day I just happened to be walking over to um, a group of people that were out under a tree drinking some tea. And part of my job was just to go around and talk to people and build rapport and, um, you know, gain that cross-cultural understanding and trust so like if we did implement projects that people knew who I was and trusted me and knew my face and so I was just going over to sit with some people and drink tea and as I'm approaching them they're like raising their hands to wave to me and their faces just were like like this look of horror and before I could even turn around to see what they were looking at behind me I felt this thing like grip my leg and then I felt the teeth sink in it was a, a this huge dog had like bit into the back of my leg and was like pulling my leg and these people are watching me get attacked and so I started throwing rocks at him and the dog runs away. 
Um, but I was bleeding. I still have the scars. There's like four canine holes in the back of my leg. <laughs> and uh, I had to like limp back to the mud hut. And um, I had like a first aid kit with like two band-aids and like some rubbing alcohol. But um, again, I had to explain to folks like um, I, I need to I need to leave. And the village that I was in was like four and a half miles off the nearest road. Um, so I was nervous. I didn't know, like, did this dog hit an artery? Like, am I going to bleed out out here? So again, I was like, hey, like, if something happens to me and like I go right now, like can you guys again, make please make sure my body goes back to my mom. <laughs> my mom was like back in the US, like they couldn't talk to me. There was no cell phones. There's no electricity out there. I was just like depending on these people to like take care of me. And they, and they did, they watched out for me. They helped me like limp out of the village and um, get to the main road where I could like hitchhike and, and get a car into the city and get back to the Peace Corps uh, medical office where they, they treated the wound. But um, that, that was, that was scary. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, all's well that ends well. I, you know, I, I was fine. Um, but it was just, again, in the moment having to like use what little language I had to navigate that situation um, because they, at first they were like, well, we don't have any doctors out here, but, uh, but there's a bush doctor. And I knew this dude, he was a funny guy. <laughs> he'd like walk around. Yeah. It was a shaman and he yeah. had like, walk around, like pouches of snake teeth and he'd like give people <laughs> blessings. And like one of the first weeks that I was there, like some little kid came to my hut and he had like his, a bone was like protruding through his arm. He had like fallen or something. And he's like, you're, you're white. You can fix it. And I was like, oh my God, I'm not a doctor. Like, I don't, you know, again, like I have like a kit here with some bleach and, cause but I couldn't help this little kid somebody had sent him to my house like there's a doctor in town I'm like no I'm not here <laughs> I'm not here on a, as a doctor but um but they hadn't they didn't really they're still weren't getting used to me so this kid had come to my house with his broken arm and and the shaman came and treated it which was like wrapping it with um with some leaves and like putting actually putting dirt on it to try to like clean the wound and uh so I was like you know that image was in the back of my mind when I was bleeding out the back of my leg and um the folks that had come in to the hut to see what was wrong they were like you know we can go get him and I was like ah oh, you know what um <laughs> the, the peace corps like there's like a white people doctor that we go to when we get sick and like you know I mean that's the language I use I don't I don't yeah. say like white people it was like literally like you that's what you say um to refer to like the the foreigners they, they called us the word for foreigner was batura which is white person um, so I was like, I got to go to the Batura doctor <laughs> and, uh, they got some special medicine for us. <laughs> so, um, so that was, that was kind of funny, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it ended up being fine, but, um, again, like language and culture, like, which is really, really important. <laughs> what were, you know, you, you you said your dad had these Vietnamese friends and you grew up in Connecticut, you went to college. What, what were some of the m more like culture shock aspects of living in this rural village, if there were culture shock. Oh yeah. No, I mean, there was culture shock from day one. I remember when we landed in Niamey, which is their urban center, their capital, like there was some volunteers that were like ready to get back on the plane and go home just because, I mean, you guys, it's the same thing when you deploy or, or travel to, to a foreign country, like when you step off the plane and it's like all the senses are on rapid fire, the smells, the sounds, like we landed at seven o'clock at night in Niamey, like 2005. July, it was like 110 degrees, prayer crawls going off. There's people approaching you trying to take your bags at the airport. And, you know, <laughs> um, so it's really, really intense. Like that culture shock, I remember in the beginning and just like all the language going on around you, there's no English and you're just like, oh God, like, am I going to make it? Um, but out in the village for sure, um, 
there was there was so much. I mean, obviously those aspects of living in a, a remote, uh, rustic area. Um, I didn't have running water. I would go to the well every day and, and pull my water from the well with the ladies. And, um, we had no electricity. So, you know, I had my lanterns and my headlamp and, um, I mean, some of that stuff was cool. Like you're, you're living as one with nature. Like I went to bed every night and there was mosquito net looking up at like a gazillion stars. And it was like the most incredible thing that yeah. I'd ever seen in my life. And, um, but as far as like the people, uh, yeah, the, the culture shock, was was huge because there's just so many things that god i don't even know where to start and i wouldn't want to just go off in a million tangents but i mentioned liza mentioned earlier um this was a conservative muslim village so that was a big shock for me i had not really been grown up around many muslim folks and so that was my introduction to islam which was cool it was a cool way to learn it you know i mean i did uh well I, I did i tried to do ramadan but i sucked at it. <laughs> I did like three days and then i was like sneaking granola bars in my hut but um <laughs> i you know i learned about ramadan and eid and all the holidays and um it was just really really cool to to learn that firsthand and um be around that but um it, it was tough i mean it was again off the grid um like if you've lived or worked or deployed to a developing country you know that there's this pattern of like there's these bigger urban centers like the capital city or regional cities and then everything gets really quick remote from there so like we had two sets of volunteers in the peace corps there were city volunteers and there were bush volunteers and so there's that like like informal rivalry of we call it posh corps and bush corps <laughs> but the, for the bush volunteers like for us like that was it was um wild to kind of be out uh, like living in in places where there's no schools, there's no hospitals, there's no clinics, there's no access to things that a lot of things that we take for granted here. Um, you're just learning to like live off the land and really understand um, like subsistence living. And I think uh, James Laporta talked about this really, really greatly on uh, his interview that he did with you guys, just like bearing witness to people that are just trying to make it day to day. Right. Uh -huh. So, um, you know, a lot of people in international aid or, you know, I was a young, naive Peace Corps volunteer. Like a lot of us are just our first big trip out into the world, right? Like we don't really um, understand like a lot of those cultural nuances going in. So you think like, I'm going to go help people, right. <laughs> you know, like we know best. And then you get there and you're like, this isn't a choice people are making, right? right. To, yeah. to, to live and struggle or, or have like half their kids die off before the age of five. There are reasons why these things are happening and it is incumbent upon us as as, as volunteers who are working towards sustainable development solutions to understand those complexities. Right. Right. So that kind of set, and it, that's what set me up to, to be working in cross-cultural tra training later on, especially with folks that are like embedding with partner forces or host, host nation forces. You want missions to succeed or like provincial reconstruction in Afghanistan, you want it to succeed, but like, why are things falling flat or why does money end up in the wrong hands or why do projects not work? Well, I mean, that was our, our assignment, you know, we got to, to, Peace Corps in Niger, like in our, and I keep mentioning like this specific country because again, like all Peace Corps uh, assignments are different. Somebody doing Peace Corps in Azerbaijan or Macedonia or Fiji is going to have a completely different experience than I had. Um, we lived in one of the most remote places that Peace Corps goes, so like those issues were were different and deeper. Um, but when you start to understand like why why these things are happening, then you can find more viable solutions. If you try to skip the why and just say we're going to build a school. And you don't have the teachers or the local folks don't have the buy-in or, or the ability to support that element. Then like two months later, there's just a bunch of millet stalks growing up through the cement and there's goats in your school and there's no kids and no teachers. Right. So like that kind of stuff happened a lot. If people don't, don't, don't pay attention to uh, cultural complexities and um, those deeper things. And so our assignment was basically do not do any work before you've been there for six months. 
go live and listen. Drink tea, hang out, learn your language, learn the culture, understand the, the power dynamics in the town that you live in, understand who's who, because you can have a key leader on paper, but he's not really the key leader that makes the decisions. You know what I'm saying? Right. Right. So like you have to make sure that you're doing a lot of observation. And when you're um, getting to know people in the village or the town that you're working in, like you, you, you figure out who you can trust, who's got the buy-in, who really wants to, to work on things with, with you and, and things like that. And that takes a long time and a lot of humility and a lot of just sitting back and observing and listening mm-hmm. and not trying to do, do, do right away. No, it's, it's interesting. And, you know, it's, it, you know, we've talked about it before, but one of the things that Americans don't get often when you, we go overseas, especially to, you know, uh, Africa and Southeast Asia and these other places is like tribal identity, um, you know, family identity, you yep. know, the, these things that are very political and, yeah. and influence everything they do. Yeah. And I mean, it's no different. Like we have those things here. Right. And so I think sometimes people sure. just make the assumption like, well, they're all the same. It's like a monolith. And if we just say this one thing, like everyone's going to receive it the same way. But like the village I lived in, they had like, there was literally they called it east side and west side <laughs> we had the east side of town the west side of town they their leaders did not get along um there was drama there was you know it was interesting because i was always just a fly in the wall for it all but it was like oh my god like that i i especially at the well you guys saw whiskey tango foxtrot with a uh, yeah tina Fett, right the, the woman gossiping down at the well in afghanistan well i mean that's where all the gossip was in niger <laughs> so i go to the village well and i just hear these women talking about other women or <laughs> And it's like, but I'm like taking mental notes, like, all right, you know, because <laughs> if I decide to work on a project with her, then she's going to be pissed off. And like, they're going to think I'm giving money to him. And it was just constantly like calculating who not to piss off when you're trying to like work on projects how, with people. How, so big was this, how big was this village? Like, I, how long would it take you to walk from the east side to the west side of the village? It was, I was probably like around like 1500 people. And I was in one of the bigger ones. Most people I knew, a lot of volunteers were in like villages of three or 400 people. So I was like in the big leagues. It was like 1,500. Wow. So, so I could walk around the town. If I went all the way across town, it'd probably be like a like 15, 20 minute walk. Someone once told me, uh, this was in the Philippines about how Americans need computer programs like Analyst Notebook to make link charts of the village and how the village dynamics work. And he said, we do that genetically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, and also that like reminds me to, uh, that I, I often fail to mention, like the, the, this town that I was in was one that um, there wasn't written language. So most people did not know how to write. So yeah, everything's like up here and it's all just like spoken spoken word and uh, so word is important word is your bond and um and uh yeah so but yeah everything was invisibly recorded and it was like putting all the pieces of the puzzle together in this invisible <laughs> way trying to figure out who's who and and what's what but um yeah so it was there is when you ask about culture shock i'm like oh god i could go on i could talk for hours i'm not gonna <laughs> but um i hope that gives people a picture um Cause that, that's definitely what landed me in a, a later role, like working the roles that I did at, at, right, on right. those social contracts was um, digging deep into that kind of background knowledge in that AO um, to come up with some of the scenario writing that I ended up doing on those SOCOM contracts. Yeah, so, so tell us about like how that came about, like what was the next stop, stop after the Peace Corps and, and what led you into working for Special Operations Command? 
Yeah, so I took a little detour. I came home from the Peace Corps and I knew that like uh, other folks that I'd known that had gone back overseas and worked teaching English, like you need to have a master's degree. And I was like, oh, I hate school. Like, But um, I, I went back and got a degree in linguistics, which was really, really cool because I found that like that, again, that background knowledge of having learned a language in real time versus sitting and learning a language in a, in a schoolhouse somewhere or in middle school or high school or, you know, when you're, when you're at like DLI, a still come school. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, it's it's in isolation, but having learned a language like in real time out in the world, uh, I came back and 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 studied linguistics. And while I was taking those day classes, um, getting my grad degree, I was uh, working at night teaching immigrants and refugees in Hartford, Connecticut, which was so fascinating. I was I was training up uh, refugees to apply for their U.S. citizenship, was which was really cool. Um, it's kind of like that full circle element of like conflict zones around the world, like all these students from Bosnia, Somalia, um, all the hotspots, you know, uh, this was back in like, I guess, 2007, 2011. I had Ar Iraqi refugees, Syrian refugees. Um, so yeah, it was, it was wild, but um, so that was really cool too. Again, like having to learn about all those cultures and how those folks learn and learn differently. Um, again, a lot of those languages and, and cultures ended up coming back around when I when I was working at, uh, on those SOCOM contracts. Um, as DLI and SOCOM were still focused on some of those. Uh, Arabic always was the mainstay. But um, yeah, so I, I finished my degree and um, as night classes, obviously weren't paying the bills and a lot of that was volunteer. So I just went on the job boards and I was like looking at English teaching jobs overseas. And I just happened to see one in the UAE and it was on Sheikh Zayed military city. It was a cooperation uh, contract between the US embassy and the Emirati Air Force. And so um, I applied and, and I and I, I got the job. That was 2011. Went over there and taught for about a year and a half. And they ran the uh, the DLI, the Defense Language Institute, ALC, the American Language Course, which is their English component. So, um, like Dave, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, DLI at Lackland. So the DLI's foreign language element is at Coronado. I think they have some. I mean, they have classes throughout the SOCOM enterprise or around the country, but. The DLI American Language Center is headquartered at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio. I wasn't aware of that at all. Yeah, it's huge. It's a huge program. It's this huge cooperation between the U.S. and partner forces. And so they've got like all these seats for like, I don't know the exact numbers. I've never actually worked for DLI, but like, let's say, for example, they got like 100 seats for Saudi students and 100 seats for Emirati students, Afghans, you name it. Partner forces that we work with that need English language training um, will often be able to send students to Lackland to to take English classes for six months, which is really cool. Um, but this was uh, an element set up over in the UAE to kind of um, create like a funnel because there were too many students. So we would teach for six months there and then our students would sit for a test. And if they passed the test, then they would get to go on to study at San Antonio at Lackland, um, which was pretty cool. And those guys were pilots and air crew and some guys were part of the Patriot missile program at the time. So, so that was pretty cool. That was my first um, experience working on a military base and working with military students and absolutely loved it because it's just when you're teaching somebody a skill in real time that's going to empower them to defend their country but they're also an ally of ours and you want to be able to give them the skills to help us do what we need to do in other parts of the world that just opened my eyes to that whole thing and then but I was commuting like an hour and a half from Dubai to uh, to this military base in the middle of nowhere like every day it was like an hour and a half commute out hour and a half commute back and I don't know if you guys like transited through Dubai before like it's not it's a hot place <laughs> it's hot and humid and like after a year of working in the desert people kind of taper off so I did a year and a half and then time-wise just happened to quit at the right time like I kind of got sick of it and I was like all right this has been really fun but I, I need to go do something else and that was just when the company that I was working for in the UAE was a 
uh, a U.S. government contractor, they were awarded uh, a U.S. SOCOM contract to, to design some language curricula for NSW. So I was like, I quit. I'm leaving. And they were like, well, why don't you come to Arlington? We got an office there. Like you've, you, you worked in the UAE. We need an Arabic project manager. So Dave, you'll think this is funny, but that they don't actually, you don't need to speak Arabic to get around in Dubai and the UAE. So I didn't really have like that much Arabic, just what my students had taught me. Um, I learned commands to yell at my students, like Shabab, quiet down, you know, <laughs> like stop talking, but I didn't really know fluent Arabic. But anyways, I got, I got brought back on in Arlington um, to work on some of these language uh, lessons that we were putting together for NSW. NSW was leading the charge at the time on this, what they called LREC curriculum redesign. So LREC is the acronym Language, Regional Expertise and Culture. And so that's um, what SOCOM was focused on doing as far as different teams that needed to, I mean, NSW is more direct action. And I went on to work on contracts for MARSOC and did a needs analysis for AFSAC and their teams are much more uh, working hand in hand with partner forces. But um... step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse with family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChapaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. In any event, uh, LREC was, was this new thing, and we got to be involved in the, the curriculum design and development for those teams. And so part of our job as curriculum designers was to get to know the student, get to know the customer. Um, so it was like deep dive into the psychology of Navy SEALs and, and the MARSOC teams and the AFSOC folks and, and getting to know what they do and who they are so that when we put something together for them um, so they can practice their language and cross-culture skills before they go downrange, that it's relevant and it's it's worthwhile. So, um, yeah, but that was the honor of a lifetime. And, I got to go sit with some really cool teams. And what did you think of that? Like going from, you know, the, the classroom, like the, the classroom environment, uh, you know, in, in near Dubai and then... And then this now project management, like bringing this new project program to, to fruition. Yeah, it was really cool to kind of be back of the house doing lesson design. And the coolest part was, um, so NSW at the time had about, you know, I won't say them all, but like, let's just give a few examples like Arabic, uh, Pashtu and Dari were pretty important at the time. Um, Spanish, Tagalog. So you got these different language teams um, at our company and it was mostly they tapped previous Peace Corps volunteers and previous Mormon missionaries because they knew that those folks we'd all lived and worked overseas somewhere for two years kind of off the grid and so we had a good background in language and culture but we also worked with language and culture SMEs from those countries uh -huh. so on my team I had two Iraqis which was really cool um, I had one female um, who had grown up in Baghdad and then moved to the U.S. and then a guy who was Iraqi military history is so cool uh, he was trained by 
some U.S. soldiers and he married his his wife was training him <laughs> in arms and um and uh they met they met on the, the range and then they fell in love and ended up getting married so he came back to the U.S. and was looking for a job and I was like hey man like you got a military background we're designing Arabic curriculum for like from U.S. military so we hired this guy and so we got to work with folks from all around the world is what I'm getting at and um we had this whole floor of this office building in Arlington Virginia with this whole curriculum development team we had culture and language smiths from around the world and um we also had the floor below me was the AFPAC hands program. If any of your listeners have ever gone through that program or are familiar with it, it was a whole wing of just Dari and Pashtu teachers um, doing intense culture and language training for folks that were assigned to the AFPAC hands program. I think that was mostly um, the folks that we got were, were, were Rangers. Um, but I know there were other AFPAC elements around the country and I'm, I'm not sure who they trained, but so we had Rangers coming through and we had, um, the, the AFPAC, uh, these teachers from Afghanistan and Pakistan teaching them, which is so cool because it's like you got all these people from all around the world. So there's always a holiday to celebrate. There's always great food <laughs> getting brought into the office. And um, like now Ruse, we celebrated with the Afghans and they just have this big old party. And so that was so cool. Again, like I mentioned that because it's like you're just ingesting like, like a sponge, like more and more culture and language knowledge. But um, as, to your point, like going from the classroom where I'm just, you know, teaching, teaching, teaching to being able to be part of this um, back-end design was really cool and um socom kind of trusted us to they gave us the framework they're like we want this curriculum to be relevant for operators right like most textbooks for foreign language or apps like if you've studied using rosetta stone or duolingo or you studied a language in 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 high school your textbook was probably like chapter one introductions talk to other students in your classroom chapter two classroom objects how many pencils are on the page or chapter three, like, let's go to the shopping mall, right? Like, I can see how, like, a Navy SEAL would probably pick up a lesson like that and be like, what, what am I going to use this for? Yeah. So our job was to take, you know, even basic language. We were doing an initial acquisition training course, like a basic language course for the SEAL SWIC teams, is to take that basic language and put it in a context that's relevant to them. Right. Okay. So you're setting up a firing range with your Iraqi counterparts. Give them five commands or give them instructions step-by-step how to clean their weapon, whatever. You know, so it was... Um, basic language, but in the context of of an right. operator, or um, you know, like with Marsak, I would sit there and, and go through their entire mission task set and be like, "All right, tell me what you did downrange. Like, when did you use language and culture, or when was it irrelevant, or when did you wish you had it?" And I'd make notes on those tasks and then go back and and design lessons around that. So it was really cool because it gave me the chance to again, like that was my introduction to like what these guys did. I really didn't grow up, like I said, other than my father who had some crazy war stories. I didn't really have a lot of folks I knew in the military. This is the first time I was around folks that were, um, that had served. And um, it just opened my eyes to everything that these guys do in it, which was so cool. Cause all I knew was like, I mean, some guys from my high school went, you know, enlisted after graduation. It's like Marine infantry. That's all I knew. They went to Afghanistan, did their four years and they were out. And they right. had some, again, like their war stories, but these guys are like telling me all they do to go build partner force capacity. And I was like, man, that's incredible incredible like I didn't know any of this existed or yeah. like what was it Amy Forsyth's interview you guys did a few weeks back I'm like I never knew there were you know civil affairs teams or like female engagement teams like I wish I had known about that when I was younger like I had no idea it would have been you know so cool to be involved in something like that um but that was again like the gateway into partner force training which then opened my eyes to the opportunities that existed overseas and, and places like Afghanistan where um the AFID element was going on over in the special mission wing in the Afghan air force. That, that's interesting. I mean, it's interesting, the concept that you're saying it's still basic language acquisition. It's just relevant. Like 
They need to know yeah. how to say ceasefire, not where is the library. Right. <laughs> I still, or, like, I still remember that. Like I, that. I remember I being in the that. language well, lab, and there would be like saying, like, liter me. Don't shoot me. We move. Don't shoot us. <laughs> right. But even things like like library or school or hospital, like we create activities where it's like, okay, you're going on like a recon mission. You're doing surveillance somewhere in town. Like you got to mark off the relevant buildings. And that's a chance where you can dump in things for different AOs. Like right. in the middle, they might not need to know church, but they're going to need to know mosque. Right. Or teaching natural disasters like earthquake, tornado, like those don't always occur in like every ao so you make it really specific to the ao or things like seasons like we're not going to learn seasons in the context of planning a vacation around a season right when you're planning or you're getting ready to go um uh do an insertion or extraction you're going to need to know the weather right so like put it in the context that where they use that language again we don't expect that like a seal or swick team is going to go down range and be operating with each other in arabic right uh, no absolutely not i would hope they wouldn't because it would right. damage their right. ability but you're just giving them they never get out the gate right they just <laughs> i'm gonna piss off the navy seals Listen well to i mean but- it's fair i mean other you know few special operations teams if they had to operate completely in a foreign language would ever get out the gate uh, I, yeah i mean that's just the reality that's not it. that's yeah. I, i'm not i'm not crapping on seals i'm just saying that it's it's not a reality that like most teams in, are fluent in, fifth, in, in a, fifth group. How many yeah. guys did we have who are like a three three in their target language of Arabic? Like, yeah, I, I don't know the number, but I bet it's like a dozen. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like with the Afghans too. Like when I ended up, I was working overseas, like teaching English. It's like we don't expect ever when they're when when they've all. Um, got like an all afghan crew on an aircraft i would hope that they're speaking to each other in dari while they're trying to do stuff on the aircraft tower yeah you're gonna <laughs> you guys need to know how to like tower talk in english but like amongst yourselves in a life or death scenario like please use dari <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, yeah don't try to do that in english right so um but again it was and and this is how, like socom was forward thinking in that like they know that they were just like we want this to be the word relevancy comes up so much in their literature they were so committed to making sure that their teams were getting language training and culture training that was relevant so that these guys can see the usefulness because you know language and culture has a reputation in training pipelines people don't always see it like a force multiplier sometimes they see it as this weird like sideline thing like why do i gotta do this right mm-hmm. and so if you present them with a language lesson that they don't see as relevant off the bat they're just going to dismiss it right and and we want them to know like hey like you know especially for those of us who had i mean i mentioned that dog bite story i was also on a bus that got hijacked once like i i ended up in some crazy situations like overseas where uh, like i know what it's like to be in a situation and be like unarmed alone and, and and have to just kind of like make my way using what what negotiation skills i have in language and culture yeah so i want these guys to know like hey you might need this or you know when you go into a room and you have an official key leader engagement and like yeah your language is a one one or a two two and you got this heavy accent like from wherever you're from but it goes so far you guys know this if you you know i dave i hope you got to use your arabic at some point yeah. i hear these stories of people yeah, in foreign language you get yeah. sent to a different AO, but you know you know, that look in somebody's face when you speak Arabic to them and they're like, oh my God, like you're speaking my language, you know, yeah. like it, it just goes so far and it, it lays the groundwork for whatever else you're trying to get done um, and creates such a, a, um, such a bond and such a trust and any training we talk about training. Um, I can, excuse me, like geek out and like pedagogy, but like any training or educational element, like when you're working overseas with, uh, with folks, if you're, even if you're doing like some kind of embedded training with partner forces, um, trust is the key element 
right? Because with trust, then you build respect. And if people respect you, then they want to learn from you. If you try to skip that stuff again, and you're mm -hmm. just trying to throw information at people, like you might think they're taking it in and they're taking it seriously, but then things fall flat in live trainings. And it's like, why did that go wrong? And, th and those were the kinds of things we were trying to figure out when we would sit and interview teams that had gone down range. It's just like, you know, when were you in a scenario where like you were working with your, with host nation forces or partner forces and like something went wrong, like you were in a room and like, the meeting went south and you couldn't really pinpoint why um you know usually the guys would be like well yeah this one guy made some like jackass comment or like maybe we should have said this or that or like we don't know what went wrong but we wish we could we had the cultural training to to figure that out yeah because we really needed to get information from that person or we really needed that meeting to go well so you know again all the way back in arlington virginia i'm trying to like come up with these scenario prompts to, to, to get these guys to, to practice those kinds of things and envision themselves in those kinds of scenarios and see like where this stuff could come in handy downrange. Yeah. And you're right. It's like, you have to, you have to get by and you have to sell it to them because like yep. in the beginning of the war, like, what are you going to hear from the standard warfighter? I speak five, five, six, right? Like that's, and so in order to, to get them to understand how beneficial these things can be to them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that so did, did you go was there a learning process for you did did you i know you had already kind of worked with the military prior to that but did you go into them uh, into the situation with any amount i don't want to like any amount of idealism that didn't pan out like did, did you have did you like in the peace corps you have all these optimistic idealistic you know hopeful people and then you deal with the military all these jaded salty crass well, <laughs> was there a transition period for you? I mean, I think I came out of the Peace Corps pretty cynical. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> I had, I mean, and I, and I also like to like, my disclaimer always is like, I, I am one person in the, out of all the tens of thousands of Peace Corps sure. volunteers that have gone around the world. And so like my experience was like pretty unique, even in that country where I, I didn't, I ended up not having a good time and like not leaving my village on in good terms. Cause my, my village elders wanted me to build a mosque. And at the end of the day, I was like, hey, man, like U.S. government ain't going to go for that. Like we we don't fund mosques. And it was like this this idea that like, well, if we build the mosque, like all these other problems you're trying to help us solve, like infant mortality and people dying in childbirth. He's like, those problems will solve themselves. You don't need to stop trying to build a school, stop trying to get the women literacy classes, like just build the mosque. <laughs> it's a big, big fight. And uh, it wasn't a big fight. I, was, I basically just said, like, I can't like it, and it's hard for them to understand. Like we don't get involved in like religious things. Right. Like, the church and state was not a. We're not talking right. about that. So I had to have um, one of my, one of the local Peace Corps staff had to come out and basically have like an intervention <laughs> with my village elders and say like, she's not here for that. And if you don't want the women to learn how to read and write, we're going to take her out. And so I actually got taken out and reassigned to a bigger city for the last few months of my service. But so I left Peace Corps and I was like, man, like, you know, that was, that was, that was a really intense exchange of, of of time and um but it was it was hard because it's like i don't blame them I, that's their life that's their world i'm not there to change people's thinking like all i can do is say like hey i'm here if, if you need resources um and you need help like i had a guy from a local ngo that wanted help funding um he had made aids awareness pamphlets and he needed some funding to get them printed and like i helped him do that i was like i'm here if you need me but like i'm not going to get in fights with people um this is their culture this is their their domain and um but, you know, it, it was eye-opening. You're right. Like people go go overseas and they volunteer for these things. And they're just like, I've got the answers. I, I know why they're not doing what I think they should be doing. It's because they haven't heard from me. And it's like, God, we're 22. Like, why would anybody listen to us? Like, why are people going to listen to me about family planning in this village where like they knew I was unmarried, which is like, 
big no-no number one like who are you you're 22 and you're not married what's wrong with your parents like they were like your parents let you come here unmarried who are you people <laughs> like they just said like for them that was so crazy the girls in my village got married at 15 or have babies at 14 um so it was wild for them that I was like older and unmarried and I, like so and I wasn't Muslim right so like the things I'm telling them they're just like why should we listen to you and so that was like the, like super humbling and um, a lot sometimes, like I don't think people get to go through that experience of of having to humble themselves and say, like, I'm not the savior here. Like, that's not my job. Like, you know, um, if 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 the best I can do is is drink tea with these people and be there for them. I mean, I, I help people go to the hospital. I raise money to to help people um, pay hospital bills or, or get their kids checked out of the hospital. Like, I had a good relationship with a lot of people, even the village elders and I like didn't see eye to eye. Um, and when I left there, like, I remember taking the OPI on the way out the door and I was like near native fluency. Um, not now, but it's like definitely languished, but that was cool. Like to me, that was an achievement that was like, um, they taught me that they taught me that language. They taught me all about their culture. And, um, I think the more that we can do of that in the world, like, you know, this is the naive, naive the Peace Corps volunteer in me, like the better world we could be if we all just kind of hung out with each other a little more, but like those dudes trusted me, like, what I like to think of now, um, and I'm sorry, I'm going on a little segue here, but and a little tangent, but we were on the border of Nigeria. Like I was, I could see Nigeria from my backyard. Like look, look over those thorn bushes past the cemetery. That was Nigeria. Boko Haram was down there at the time and extremist elements were like moving around down there. And you sensed the change. Things were becoming more conservative and more extreme. And in 2011, I think it was, or 2012, there's a couple of French kids that got ki kidnapped in the capital and the rescue op went south on the border of, I think, Burkina Faso and they, they were killed. And that's when all the aid organizations and Peace Corps pulled out. So Peace Corps hasn't been there in over a decade, right? And why I say all this is because I'd like to think that where I lived, um, if somebody came rolling through on a Toyota with a bed full of guys with AKs and they're trying to recruit people from my village and say like, well, you should come hang out with us. We want to kidnap some Westerners because we don't like them. They're awful. They're this or that. Well, you know, that invisible buffer is all of us had been there. Right. Right. Like all these people had been exposed to to Americans. It's that soft diplomacy element of I would like to think people would say, like, actually, like Joan wasn't like that. You know, like we know Americans and then they're not like that. So screw you, you know, like I don't know. I mean, again, is that naive? They're probably getting paid money. Who knows? But um, but I would like to think that the impact that we had there isn't just about how many schools you build or how many grain banks you build or, or how many you know kids you feed. It's the relationships that you build. And this all comes back to, you know, we'll get to this at some point, the, that moral injury component of people that left Afghanistan, service members, civilian contractors, defense contractors last year in August, 2021, who were sitting on their living room floors in the United States with broken hearts, crying to their families. I, I didn't do my job. I left someone behind and I don't know how to deal with that. And the only thing I could say to them was like, look, like your friends see you fighting for them. These Afghans, like they know that their government like folded. I had my interpreter texting me like, oh man, you see Ghani getting on the plane? Like that guy's a piece of, I don't yeah. know if I can say it on a podcast, you know, but you can. Shit. you can say anything you want. Right. On the spot, yes. Yeah. If you literally, I have the screenshot. He was yeah. just, I was like, Ghani got on the plane. He's like, he's shit. And I was yeah. like, yeah, but they saw us fighting for them. And so I was, the veterans that I worked with, the U.S. veterans that I was working with in these Afghan evac groups, and they were just like, I can't believe that I did this to this guy. I can't get him out. Like, I'm a failure. 20 years. What does it all mean? And I'm like, those guys are not the ones that are going to be running to go work with the Taliban right now and fly their aircraft for them. Hell right. no. Right. Hell no. They're waiting for you to get them out and they see you fighting for them. And that means a shit ton more, right. you know, right. than what they see going on between our governments. Like our government might have let them down and their government might have let them down, but it's the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands 
of people that are there over the past two decades that served in uniform and, and built relationships with those people. That's what they're going to remember. Right. Right. When they come to the United States, like the first thing they do is like look up their buddy that they, they worked with in Afghanistan. Right. Those refugees that did get out and those people are looking out for them here. And I think that speaks to the power of, um, you know, taking seriously, like building rapport and and taking culture seriously because that's the invisible buffer right now that still stands in the way of people falling prey to terrorist recruitment so um you know whatever you know to go back to niger like being on that border remembering hearing stories about boko haram staging attacks across the border and killing nigerian police officers it's like god damn you know like what happens if they come across the border and they swept through this town like who knows you hear about massacres occurring right now in mali and niger and i'm like man like am i gonna get a, a phone call or a message that that's one of the places that we worked i should hope not you know but like all you can do is is be a presence and and try to learn from people and and learn what's going on in their world and i i try to do my best at that even at the end of the day like i i couldn't give these guys a mosque uh <laughs> and Allah's still mad at me for that. <laughs> d wants me to ask you about the bus hijacking story oh god um, so <laughs> yeah, so this was a wild story, um, where language and culture could not save me because it was in Ghana and I was not in Niger, but, um, so if, if any of your viewers or listeners have ever traveled or deployed or worked in, in the Sahel region, there's this cool visa that you can get, or used to be able to get, it was like five country visa for all the Francophone countries. It was like Mali, Niger, Burkina, uh, Benin and Togo. And so at the end of our service, a lot of volunteers would take like you you would accrue leave time. So at the end of the two years, a bunch of us would go down and like do this little like tour of West Africa. You go down to the beach in Togo and like, you know, have have some cold beers. You can only get warm beers in these years. But so we go down to the coast and you party a little bit and then come back and close out your service. And um, I was on a bus in Ghana. Ghana, by the way, is a really cool country to go to and visit. And I recommend anyone do it. I give that disclaimer because the story I'm about to tell will probably scare people away but (laughs) I think this is just like me being at the wrong place at the wrong time um Ghana was otherwise like a beautiful beautiful beaches beautiful rainforest you can go walk around do a canopy walk but I was taking a bus back through Burkina Faso to get back to Niger and I was on a bus it was Easter weekend so there's a lot of traffic on the roads in Ghana and people were trying to get back home for the Easter holiday and I was on this main highway on this like their version of a greyhound bus and um, there was a road rage, road rage incident between our driver and the driver of a van that was ahead of us. And what happened was, I don't know if they like hit each other. They just started yelling at each other. Traffic stop. All the men on the Greyhound bus and the driver got out and all the guys in the van ahead of us got out and they started like fist the cuffs. They're fighting. They're grabbing like steel beams off the side of the road and like hitting each other. And we're all just all on the bus, like watching like, oh God, like what's going on, you know? And um, again, like I'm the only American on this bus and everyone around me is speaking Twi, which is the local language there. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on. I just see all these people fighting. Like, man, it sucks. Like, <laughs> and then I wonder what's going to happen next. Well, uh, one of the young men from the van ahead of us gets on our bus and starts driving the bus away. I'm like, oh, <laughs> crap like i don't know this kid's old enough to drive (laughs) like you can't make this stuff up this guy starts driving he's weaving in and out of these cars and he's driving us like back on the highway and i'm like where's this kid gonna take us well like a couple does he know the route does he know the stops yeah no yeah so apparently yeah so apparently we were like a few miles out from the village where like he and the people in the van were from so he like pulls us up to this like roadside stop in this town gets out of the bus and like a bunch of townspeople had like descended upon our bus. Like, I don't know if he called ahead or they, I mean, they had Nokia cell phones at the time. So like all these people came up to the bus, like from the town 
other men and they like barricaded the door shut at this point the van pulls up with people that had been on our greyhound bus including our driver so they the van is there the greyhound bus is there they start fighting again meanwhile townspeople are have barricaded us in the bus the, i'm us the women and children on the bus and they're putting things under the bus like wood and rope and i'm like oh god and and meanwhile they're like throwing things at the side of the bus so there's like bricks coming at the window and i was like what like i i don't even know what to do like i'm in shock i'm just like i guess this might be it like i don't know what's going on right now i feel like they're and as they're shoving wood under the bus i'm like jesus they're gonna light this bus on fire like what <laughs> what do i, I and you, it was weird like this weird calm came over me because i was like there's absolutely nothing i can do like <laughs> there's nothing we can do this is kind of escalating quite quickly and um and i'm alone and i'm just like again the first thought that comes into my mind is like I don't think that anybody knows where I am right now. Like the Peace Corps knows that I'm on vacation. You got to like fill out your visa form. Like they know I'm, but if something happened to me right now, like would anyone know? Like would my body just be like on the side of a road somewhere? So that was my first thought was like, man, I don't want my, I want my parents to be able to get my body back. And, um, and how do I do that? And I ended up, um, I must've had it written down like on a piece of paper somewhere the number for that regional security officer that I mentioned earlier, who was like a big proponent of language and culture, saving your ass. His name was Kabiru. He was a um, martial arts champion in Niger. And I just remember thinking like, I got, I got to call I got to call Kabiru. I got to let him know I'm here. So they know where to find my body. If this, if, if they take this bus out and um, one of the lead, I, I didn't have a SIM card that worked like to call Niger or text Niger um, on my Nokia. So like one of, the ladies on the bus I remember this woman like could see the concern in my face and we couldn't communicate because I we didn't speak each other's language but she just hands me her phone because I'm like looking out and looking around people are texting their families and I'm like on my Nokia like I can't do anything and she gives me her phone and I and I called Kabiru and it went through like I don't know if she had like international minutes but like I called him and he answered and I don't even know how he like answered the phone it was like a Sunday and I was like hey man like I don't want to scare you but I'm on a bus in Ghana and um they're attacking it and like there's stuff going into the bus like I think they might light us on fire um I don't know where I am I think we passed Kumasi like 30 minutes ago like just in case you guys need to find me <laughs> like I you know and I was totally calm I was just like I, I don't really know what else to tell you I'm sorry I feel like I let you guys down like I shouldn't have gotten on this bus but um and, and I hung up and then um I didn't really know what was gonna happen and then um eventually eventually the police did show up <laughs> and um <clears throat> they kind of diffused the situation and it was so weird because they like a policeman then got on the bus broken windows like dents all over the bus and the policeman gets on the bus and like starts driving us and I again I don't know what's going on because I don't understand the language I'm like is this guy gonna drive us the rest of the way like what's going on here the our driver I don't even know if our driver's alive they've been fighting out in in the woods next to the bus with the other with the van guys and this road rage incident has gone totally rogue this whole town's out now like with pitchforks and and tiki torches <laughs> and the cop starts driving us away well he drove us to the police station which was a couple miles away and parked the bus had us all get out and took some statements and then like and I just remember sitting there like I don't know what I'm going to do. The sun's going down. Like, I'm, I guess I'm going to sleep in the yard of this police station here. Like, this is wild. I'm just glad I'm okay. But this is what a, what a situation. And then <laughs> the two drivers come out of the police station, like patting each other on the back, laughing, like chucking it up. Like they had made up at the police station. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like we almost died. now you guys are BFS. What the hell? And our driver gets back on the bus and he's like, anyone that wants to still come with me, like we're taking off. And like three people got back on the bus and the rest of us were like, I'm good, you know? <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, 
um, I'm sitting there at this police station. Like I'm out of money. I'd spent the last of my, my stipend on this bus <laughs> ticket to get back to Niger. And I'm like, dude, I'm screwed right now. Like to the high heavens, like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I got to hitchhike back to um, Accra. The policeman comes over to me and he's like, you can come stay with me and my wife tonight. And I was like, Oh God, no. Like, and so it was just so weird. I was like, I can't deal with all this right now. That like, guy's trying to take me home with him. Like is, I don't know. You know, I turned him down. I'm like, maybe that's the one that got away. Like, I have no idea. I was so, I was so out of sorts, but, um, he was a nice guy. I just didn't really, I was like, you got a wife, man. What, was it the creepy eyebrow thing he did when he asked? And it was, was that? Yeah, it was definitely, it was like, otherwise it would have been cool. I would yeah. go, you know, hang out and eat some like, um, you know, yams with you guys. But anyways, so I'm sitting there on the side of the road, like this cop wants to take me to home and the bus is gone and the sun is going down and I'm literally about to sleep on the side of the road in Ghana. And like, I'm, my head is in my hands and I've never felt so helpless in all my life. And then like out of a movie, I look out into the distance and like out of this dust cloud on the road in the distance, like the white Toyota four by four, like, you know, the, all the aid organizations, like the white Toyota is like peers out the dust and stops and this guy leans out the window he's like are you joan barker and i was like yes and he's like get in the car and and it was it, the peace corps had like peace corps Niger had phone peace corps ghana and said like you need to go get this girl somebody needs to go up and help her and they had like brought like i, I think they brought like weapons at the time they thought i was like in danger which i guess i was but um so they brought me back to accra and then um the peace corps folks there helped buy me another ticket and um and the next day i went back and made my way through burkina back up to Niger. but like <laughs> Yeah, you know, the bus story was kind of wild because it was just like I just felt like a helpless little lamb, and I was like, "Well, this is it. Like, it's been a wild ride. Like, I had this has been a cool experience. Like, you know, I I don't have any kids or anything. Like, I, if this is my time, this is my time. <laughs> it was it was wild. It was that definitely, is that is yeah. insane. I mean, I would be so curious to know like what was going on. It, it's yeah, like, I, yeah. I think it just it 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 was just road rage and like. I'd seen other instances where like even at bus stations in Niger, they would tend to like oversell bus tickets. And so when you went to show up to get on your coach bus to go between cities, like people would be like fighting each other, elbowing each other to get onto the bus. And like things can quickly escalate in those situations, like to like mob mentality that we're not used to here. Cause like, I don't want to again, go off on a huge tangent, but like in our country, like things operate, you know, for better or for worse, like, mostly how they're supposed to this like, is not nam there are rules here yeah it's like well like you know like even just things like banking like if i put money in the bank i'm pretty sure it's going to be there tomorrow like if i buy a ticket for a plane or a bus like pretty sure i'm going to make it on that plane or bus but and in a lot of other places like it's not like that you know um it's just kind of day-to-day and you got to fight for what you you need and it's 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 sad because it's like people shouldn't have to fight to get on a bus or like fight over food but like i saw that and it's like so, you know, I, I got it. I'd see things escalate very quickly, even in the village to like fight level. And then like, and again, the next day they're drinking tea and they're at right. the mosque together. Like what? Right. It's just oh the way God. life is. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, and again, it's that like easy, somebody, I forget the phrase. It's like easy to offend, easy to forgive or something like that. And it, it's, I don't know, like I'm, I'm Italian. Like we're angry. If you, you cross me, like <laughs> you're dead to me. So <laughs> you guys are like getting these fights. And then like the next day it was just like water under the bridge. But, um. I'll never forget those guys coming out of the police station and like they've got like bandages on their face and they're just like shaking each other's hands and I was like you guys were ready to like light us on fire what like yeah so <laughs> so how uh, ju- jumping a little further forward uh how did you end up working with the Afghanistan air wing yeah sorry that was really supposed to be with this whole interview no that's no okay. no no, no. we're, we're, we're meandering our way there yeah it's not you, <laughs> yeah, so we are getting there yeah. my life is a windy road that i don't even understand but um 
but it's brought me to some really cool places and, and, and I met some really cool people. But yeah, so I, I um, let's see. So that was like at the end of Peace Corps. So I went and worked in the UAE and then I, I worked for so on those SOCOM contracts. Um, the last thing I did for SOCOM was a needs analysis with with some ASOC um, AFID teams. And that was really cool, but they didn't end up uh, picking up the rest of the contract. So I was laid off in early 2016 and was in DC without a job. And I was trying to apply to federal jobs. I was like, enough of this contracting. Like it's, there's no job stability, no financial stability. And um, I was applying to a bunch of federal jobs and nothing was working out. Um, I, I told your producer, <laughs> only because you guys have had so many, like your guest list is like a lot of CIA and paramilitary, but I'm a CIA reject. I was waiting for a, a, an interview with the CIA in 2017. And, um, and I went in and they didn't they didn't take me so like when when that didn't work out it was actually perfect timing because there was a contract that was awarded to um, a small defense firm in Afghanistan that needed English teachers and and I applied to that and got on that and it was I wouldn't have been in that position if I hadn't been holding out for for that whole application process that took like almost a year <laughs> just to get a letter in the mail from them and like one of those like shady unmarked envelopes that was like good luck in your future endeavors and I was like well I guess they don't want me <laughs> and then I like literally called up my friend in, in Afghanistan and like if you want to get a plane I get on a plane to come over here like yeah we need English teachers and so um it worked out really well timing wise um but uh, yeah that was that was a funny that was a funny interview process but um but I'm, I'm glad that I ended up where I did in Afghanistan I was back in the teacher's seat and um my students were so so incredible I got to work with Afghan pilots Afghan crew chiefs all the back shops and those hangars um avionics guys engine and body mechanics uh sheet metal dudes and um had a blast uh basically creating curriculum for them so um so that was the summer of 2017 when I got on the plane I had to go through the air sea at Fort Bliss like <laughs> Never again. Fort Bl- um, that was in Fort Blue. Oh, you had to go through CRC. I had to go through CRC oh, to get yeah. to Afghanistan. And like, it's just a memory I don't ever want to relive. But, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. CRC is horrible. Like, yeah. So bad. Uh, for, um, do you guys, uh, you guys don't know. So CRC is, is something civilians have to go through when they're deploying overseas, where they off. dump, like they give you all your military gear. They try to give you, like, oh, yeah. it's. Do uh, they do like briefings so where they put like the VHS tape into the, into the television? Like, this is how to stay safe while you're abroad. You have to it's, take so many, all the trainings, all the trainings. Like, um, I forget them all now, but it's like the anti-terrorism training and like short yeah, trainings and all yeah, those yeah. things that are like pretty standard. But it's so embarrassing, like as a civilian, because they give you like your the stuff, like your you got your helmet and your vest, and I'm like, I've never put these things on. I look like such a dork. Like this is so silly. Um, but yeah, you have to get your your gear and and pass medical Monday and everything like that, which is like, oh, you had like a paper cut when you were three. You need to go back to the doctor and get a signature for that. And you're like, oh my god, like shoot me now. But um, yeah, so when you get through CRC, then you get on the plane and uh yep so that was august of 2017 i worked on the special mission wing on hkaya for the first few months that i was there um working with the afghan crew chiefs and that was um so that was the i don't know if you guys are familiar with like the soag or the soat teams the u.s military side the special operations aviation teams so there were like uniformed like service members on the special mission wing and some defense contractors um working over there with those smw uh commandos and their air crew and then I also did a stint on the Afghan Air Force, which is f- for folks that aren't in the know, it's more like their conventional forces. So those were uh, most of the mechanics that I was working with in the back shops. And so that was, there was no American military, like, like uniformed as part of that training, but that was more like defense contractors. And like, I think I mentioned to you guys, there was a bunch of Ukrainians there because those MI-17s were uh, Ukrainian made 
we'll call them Russian helicopters, but the MI-17 training facility that a lot of the American contractors went through is in uh, Kremenchuk, Ukraine. So, um, I mean, I'm happy to talk about like any of that training. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit about the two different programs that there's a, a sort of a special mission wing and a conventional uh, side to Afghan aviation. I mean, even kind of like a broad overview of like um, aviation, foreign internal defense in Afghanistan. Um, it's not something that we've really focused on in the show before. Yeah, I mean, there's so um, there have been some really cool analyses done. I can give you guys the links too. I think it's the uh, the Modern War Institute. Is that the one at West Point? They an article just came out about Afghanistan. There's been some really great articles that that folks that I work actually like colonels that I worked with over in Afghanistan have written about AVFID from their perspective. And I think so they're like, I'd say like they're the SMEs on like AVFID in Iraq and Afghanistan. And they've written some really good analyses of like, obviously we know that, um, I don't want to say we got in over our heads, but like, you know, just trying to train people like you train Americans when you're again, working in another culture in another country that have different um, resource limitations and culture and tribal identities we saw that every day like for example a lot of the colonels and generals and leadership on the smw on the special mission wing area of h kaya like those guys were from the panjir province and um, they were a lot of the pilots that were older that had been flying um, those mi-17s back when the smw was a narcotics interdiction unit and so they kind of like lorded over the smw and but they were good at like getting stuff done and um and so those guys were kind of in charge on, on on that side, on the SMW side. And that was like a very like efficient training pipeline that they had where it was like, we have these guys in their specific MOS and they're going to go through classroom training with um, American defense contractors, like former maintainers and former pilots. And then when they pass that classroom training that we were part of that, the English was attached to that. If they pass that, then they go to OJT on the job training on the flight line. And so then they're working with like on the aircraft with um, American mentors or trainers that might be um, U.S. military personnel still in uniform or form of veterans that have come back to contract teaching people how to turn wrenches on the PC-12s and the MA-17s. So the the special mission wing was that was their fleet was the, the PC-12 um, uh, planes and then the, the fixed wing and then they had the MI 17 for the rotary wing. Blackhawks were coming in when I was leaving. I think those went down to kandahar first but um which is i'm gonna roll my eyes i just that still makes me angry <laughs> that was kind of ridiculous um like notion of giving american helicopters to afghan partners i mean i'm from connecticut like i remember that sale going through that was like oh, sikorsky you know my grandma used to work for sikorsky like way back in like the 50s and 60s <laughs> on helicopters way back when but um even i like as a resident of connecticut like learning that our entire congressional delegation was part of that sale was just like they didn't need that. That wasn't going to be helpful to them, like in their, in that geography and that terrain. And if, if we're anybody that was part of the MI-17 training pipeline, like even as an English teacher with no background in aviation, like I see the struggles of these guys trying to maintain this aircraft um, without, they don't have their own maintenance and supply logistics pipeline in their own country. They're fully dependent on foreigners for those pipelines and um, for, for resupply and for maintenance. I mean, again, that's why the Ukrainians were there. We had Colombians on those flight lines that had flown these helicopters or, or worked on them back in um, back in Central and South America. So, you know, like the SMW and the AAF were, were, were very dependent on um, contractors in the US military being there and staying there, which is why like a lot of us were just completely furious with the narrative that was trying to be put out last summer, which is like, we've given them everything and they're fine. They're ready to go. They don't need us. It's like, why would you have 
maintenance contracts to the tune of billions of dollars still being doled out to American defense contractors. And I say that, you know, as a defense contractor, you know, people were there right up into the end, like making that money, providing that service. So it's kind of disingenuous for everybody to say like these Afghans should have and could have been ready to do that on their own. They couldn't do it with these Russian aircraft, which like were, you know, if you think about like a Black Hawk and like, for example, like the avionics suite on a Black Hawk, you know, versus the MI-17, like if, if they can't maintain and um, fly these aircraft without us, like these Russian helicopters that they've had for decades, then why are we bringing them this new shiny toy? Everybody likes new shiny We've toy. seen that. I mean, they just crashed that Black Hawk. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, I think they've yeah. crashed a number. Um, that was hilarious because like all the Afghan pilots that made it here, like were sending me that video and they're like, we know exactly what they did wrong. Like they don't even know how to like... Like, and I've uh, it's what you're bringing up is like a really important point and a, an important issue when we work with partner forces. And like I've seen it from Iraq to the Philippines to elsewhere. We train guys um, and we make them procure American military material. But what we yep. don't do is train them or teach them or enable them to maintain. So the second we're not around. Like yep. we, we, we might pull back from some of these countries for our own political reasons or whatever the case may be. Their, their night vision starts breaking down. Their guns start breaking down. All their vehicles start breaking down. They start having all of these problems. Um, yeah. So like whenever we talk about, you know, sending special forces teams to train and build, quote unquote, build capacity, that has to come with the requisite logistics and right. maintenance features um, if we want them, if we do genuinely want them to be I, a, yeah. a uh, you know, indigenous counterterrorism unit or whatever the yeah, case self, may be. Uh, self-sustaining. Right. I mean, it, just e well, e even looking at the M4 or M16, you, you introduce a 5.56 weapon into a 7.62 like we we world. In and and yeah. how are, where are they going to pick up? You can't just run down the store and get pick up 5.56. Now, 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 the question is Machiavellian. Uh, <laughs> do we want them right. to yeah. be able to do that? Uh, exactly. and, and some partners, I think, are trusted enough that we should be doing that in, in certain places. Um, others, I mean, look, I, I mean, I'm pretty happy that the Taliban are crashing Blackhawks and not maintaining them. So yeah. there's, there's that. Yeah. But I mean, even with the, the, the Afghan forces that we were training, it's like, do you... At the end of the day, all of us should be training ourselves out of a job. And if right, we're not right, doing it, right. you know, then like we don't belong here because we're using them to like keep this war machine going. And, and you know, I don't know if we want to have that discussion right now, but I mean, there's the profits. People talk about $2 trillion being wasted. How can people leave all this equipment there? It's like that $2 trillion isn't wasted, honey. That's in pockets in Crystal right. City. Like, yeah. Come on now. You know, yeah. <laughs> like, again, I'm not naive. Like, you know, the, you know. There's a great documentary that came out around like 2005 that was like oh, it was Eugene Jarecki when when I um, talking about the, the war in Iraq mostly, but he touches on Afghanistan too, and it was about that whole like the buildup of all these defense contractors around Pentagon City and like come on, like people open your eyes, and 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 that's I think another thing that that a lot of veterans struggle with is like coming back from these wars and realizing like oh god, you know like I want to fight for something that I believe in. And especially teams that are committed to like working and training partner forces and you get to know people on a human level. And then you're like, man, you know. And, and um, this is nothing new. I mean, you can go back to right. Smedley Butler during the, you know, writing his book, War is a Racket, you know, after yeah. after a, an illustrious career in the Marine Corps. Um, yeah. You know, it's, that's um, was it that documentary starts off with a, a farewell address from Eisenhower who specifically used that term military industrial complex. Like we, I mean, as a general, <laughs> World War II general, you know, like yeah. saying like, hey guys, be careful. Um, 
we we don't want to become this war machine right um so i mean we have a lot in one sense like we we do have a lot of power to do a lot of good in the world and use these skill sets to, to train other people to help us in our own missions to secure certain parts of the world but also help them to fight for their own freedom and like you know it but yeah like ethical lines are crossed all the time and it's kind of a shame when like you know lives are lost on both sides and 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 those people don't get answers you know so, so what, what was your, what was your experience like working with these two uh different aviation partners in afghanistan yeah so i mean you mean like the smw versus the aaf or sure yeah yeah so i mean again the smw just because like the the u.s military was such a presence on that flight line right like we worked we're all hold on a second i told you guys like i'm a geriatric millennial but i wonder if i can show you oh no i can't do it you can share your screen if you have a photo you you can share your screen yeah i had this um let's see um I don't know if I can get into like settings though. Hey, uh, while she's sharing the screen real quick, everybody, uh, we want to introduce you to our Patreon. If you're not already a member, uh, the link is down below. Uh, you'll be supporting us. You'll be supporting our drinking habit. You'll be supporting the church above us. Not really. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, you will get, uh, you'll get ad free episodes if you subscribe. And if you subscribe at our highest level, you may get a little uh, invitation to our Christmas party at the what? end of the year. Yeah. 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 Just giving those out there. Oh, anyway, yeah. Huh? All right. Sorry, which, that went to my, that went you, to my spam box. You're invited to, Joan, by the way, like all of our guests. So Your invitation went to my spam mail. I wasn't ignoring you. It was spam. Like, we've been sending it out to just everybody all the time. Also, it was spam. <laughs> <laughs> Can you guys, did, did the background change? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's the, that's this is, welcome to the SMW flight line. This is Ramp 5 on HKIA. So, like. <laughs> This is where we we work. We work on hangars, like with these the helicopters out on the flight line, and um, I also worked in um, classrooms and trailers, like along the flight line. But most of the work that that um, U.S. defense contractors and uniformed military personnel uh, were doing were in all these buildings, like along this flight line. So this is like our daily view from the office. And um, I think the SMW uh, was so successful at what it did is because the U.S. was working like in tandem with the Afghans every day, like leadership was working with leadership and all of us at the mentorship level were working like with Afghans also. So I was teaching Afghan crew chiefs and I had some pilots in my class, teaching them English in the beginning, um, the first few months I was there on that SMW. But I also had um, interpreters working with me. So we were all assigned interpreters in our classes in case we needed them or in case there was like a security situation um, or sometimes just explaining the logistics of what was going to be happening um, in the classes that day. So um, that's how we got to know so many of the translator interpreters that worked on that base um, that we ended up trying to get out of the end. But um, so we worked hand in hand with the interpreters and we taught the Afghan students. And the SMW had a pretty successful training pipeline. And it was really, really awesome to work over there. Just all these Americans and Afghans around each other every day. I, I, I paint that picture and give that detail because on the AAF, which I move out of the way, on the other side of that flight line, you'd see the hangars for the MI-17 hangars on the Afghan Air Force side. And so again, like that's their conventional force. Um, on that side, the Americans and the Afghans were working rather separately. And that's not by accident. So I think it was in 2013 where there was that attack where um, an Afghan colonel killed, I think it was like like nine Americans. Um, and bullet holes are still in those hangars. But um, so the Afghan Air Force uh, was being advised by uh, an element called TAC Air, which was the Ameri U.S. Air Force's element that was going over to advise the Afghan Air Force. 
So um, on the SMW side, you had the, the SOAG, which is a Special Oper Operations Aviation Group. Uh, and then on the AAF, you had TAC Air, which was like Train Advise Assist Command, I believe. So each other own acronyms. But we had so like Special Operations uh, folks in the U.S. working with Special Operations Afghans on the SMW, and then you had conventional U.S. Air Force folks working with Afghan conventional forces on the AAF. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, sorry, I'm Italian. I talk with my hands. Yeah, no, the, the, the hands are like disembodied hands now that are like coming straight at us. Like, uh. I still have all my fingers. I'm sorry. I'm scaring you guys. It's spooky season. I can get rid of this background. But um, so anyways, um, on the AAF side, because of that incident that occurred in 2013, uh, the TAC air element, the U.S. Air Force um, ended up building their own compound on, on that part of base. So they had this like secure compound where they, they worked out of and they go to like high level meetings with the Afghan Air Force colonels. But it was like you go out to a meeting, you go back to the compound and you're secure um, only because that had been such a, um, a hor horrible incident. And again, um, the after action report is that it was it was a, it was a cultural misunderstanding uh, the an afghan colonel had done something that a u.s colonel uh, it was not it was something inappropriate happened i forget like what the incident was if the guy like didn't run like didn't run something right or there was some kind of like maybe supposed like corruption or some wrongdoing and the u.s colonel like called him out in front of other people and we all know that you don't in a face-saving culture you don't shame people i mean we're used to that if we do something wrong like of course our superior is going to shame us and that's how we're going to learn not to do that thing in the future especially like u.s military training right but um that's not how it works in afghanistan so this u.s colonel thought he was doing the right thing by shaming this afghan colonel and afghan colonel showed back up and uh and, and there was an incident um so yeah i mean um I, I there was another story i think about a contractor that had pissed off an afghan they were like making fun of his mustache or, or something and that guy came back and killed some people so like there were incidences on that side of uh, of base that we had heard about and that's why um, the what i one time got to fly with the iraqi air force and the american huey pilot that was working with the iraqi huey pilot those guys were bros they'd be holding hands and stuff there's no friendly fire going on in that flight crew they were boys yeah, so that's like the the flight training on the SMW is like American either uniform military personnel or defense contractors like pilots training their pilots and and aircrew training their aircrew. So like the the culture, the trust building was still there, and like all that was happening on, on an everyday basis. And on the AAF side, like it was it's like a ghost town. Uh, we were English teachers, um, a, a little team of us that would go around to the maintenance back shops in the back of the MI17 hangar, but we were the only Americans around. Like we didn't have weapons i didn't have a guardian angel assigned to me like it was my afghan interpreter was like my unofficial bodyguard and he would just walk with me and it was just weird because having worked in the smw you're seeing uniformed personnel around you all the time it just gives you the, it makes you feel safe and it makes the afghans feel like well they trust us they don't think we're going to do anything wrong like you said like they're our bros so there's that element of trust and like um and it was just calmer and the AAF side was always like tense, like something's, something's going to go down or, you know, no, when that, when that trust is broken, it's really, really hard to rebuild. And, and the U S military just decided it was safer to keep, keep their air force, their tack air element um, in, in a guarded compound. And it was probably the right move at the time. Um, but it's so much harder to get things done. Like the anecdote that I always like to share is this one um, back shop uh, team lead. So this is Afghan dude who was running the sheet metal shop. And they needed this, like, I don't know what gas it is. They had this, like, empty gas tank, like a nitrogen or oxygen gas tank. I don't know. I forget which one it was or what it was. But it it, it fed their welding machine. And it was empty. And he's like, we haven't been able to use this machine in, like, years. It's like a welding machine to weld the sheet metal for the helicopter. And he's like, we don't, we, we can't use this. And can you help me? And I was like, 
dude, I'm an English teacher. <laughs> like, what do you want me to do? And he's like, can you go talk to someone? So I went over to the, to the compound and met with the, the American advisors. And I was like, Hey man, like, can anybody help this guy get his tank refilled? Like, who does that? Is that, is that us military? Is that a contractor's job? Like who's in charge of Like who's in charge of that? And they were just like, yeah, man, that was like an, a contractor that left in like 2015. And, and when the new contract was written, like it wasn't written into a new contract. So like, that's not our job. And so this guy just never, never got his tank filled and they can't use that welding machine. And it's like, I mean, another, this is one anecdote. I'm like, sure you could find like a million of these of like that. They don't have that capacity anymore. It just died with a contract rewrite. And, um, and I, and I had to go back to this guy and I'm like, Hey man, like they're not, they're not giving you another tank. Like, sorry, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what you're going to do. Um, so, you know, the AAF side, I, there was a certain element of like the mechanics over there were like, older they were like all these like old dudes who had like fought the soviets and they were like just like hardened dudes who just like chain smoke all day in the hangars and they'd be like you know banging shit in the sheet metal shop or like you know crawling on top of the mi-17 take the blades off and wash them and they just seemed like um like cogs in a machine (laughs) the smw is so vibrant and you're doing like flight training you're going up in the mi-17 i got to go up on a few flights that's like the picture of me in that silly vest and like (laughs) standing in front of the helicopter but i got to go hook in and like listen to comms and um, be teaching English to help those air crew operate. And on the AAF side, it was mostly just like working with dudes that were fixing the, fixing the aircraft and um, trying to give them some language where if they did work with an advisor, they could communicate problems and needs. Um, But yeah, it was really, it was totally different vibe on on the AAF side. It was, it's a shame. It's a shame, um, you know, when when things go south or when things go sour. And I don't know that, that, AAF ever recuperated from that incident in the way that folks hope they would, but they were still training. I mean, pilots were being trained on the AAF and those air advisors were doing a very important job. And the Afghan colonels were, were, um, they had training pipelines in place. It just was a totally different vibe than the SMW where you have again, um, American personnel and contractors working with the Afghans every day. And I think that speaks to, um, being able to build that element of trust and keep it, keep it intact and uh, enable enabled that flight line to operate like it did how how did your time on this contract um end up winding down um were you was that part of like the overall like drawdown in afghanistan or was it just like the company lost the contract i mean how, how did that come about um so mine was sorry i'm trying to like get this um i'm gonna shut this background off because it's just bothering me i keep like disappearing <laughs> and, like coming back but yeah it was a rather unceremonious um ending to my contract um Okay. Uh, so I worked in the SMW from August to December. I was going on my first rotation of leave and I, and I quit my job there just because the contractor I was working for, we just had differences of opinion. I wanted to be teaching people useful life skills, English for, for crew chiefs and pilots. And they wanted me teaching a standardized curriculum from DLI. <laughs> and it wasn't, it wasn't really working for the Afghans or I, th- I think for our students. And so, um, but yeah, I had heard that if you worked over on the AAF, you got to work in the back shops and, and be part of a, what they called a vocational English mentoring team. Um, and we were doing really hands-on uh, technical maintenance English. So I did that from about January, 2018 to July, 2018. And then uh, the company that I worked for, I will not name names, but they just laid us off one day and they, it was a Friday and they were like, you got to get your bags packed. You're out of here on Tuesday. You got to get up to Bagram. And um, it was just a, a program management difference. Uh, folks weren't getting along on the contract and they, our boss was uh, on someone's shit list and they fired her and fired her team under her, which was us. And so it was kind of like, uh, then they replaced us with some mechanics <laughs> uh, that the English program died is what I'm saying. So that was kind of a bummer. Um, so I got in a plane August, 2018 did like a, exactly a year, but it was, 
it was a very rushed exit we didn't get to say goodbye to the afghans it was just like you're done get on a plane like who needs english you guys were a joke anyways and so which is i say that that's i mean that's what the message was from a lot of the u.s maintainers and defense contractors we worked with they really didn't understand what we were doing or why it was important yet they would still come to us at the end of the day and be like i need you to work with this pilot or this crew chief because he needs to pass his ojt he needs english um but most of the time they just really didn't see the relevancy in what we were doing which is a shame i mean u.s commanders did and the afghans did but um the defense contractor program managers who were often um former maintainers or former pilots just they didn't understand a lot of them never like dave you got to go through that language training experience with dli if people haven't gone through a foreign language training pipeline i i think it's hard for them sometimes to wrap their head around this invisible element that's really abstract if you've never been through yeah. language and cultural training so yeah um we were cut pretty quick and they just were like well it's we can charge the government more to have mechanics over here. So right. fun back to the US. And that was, that, was a, that was a huge bummer. What was your impression over um, how the Afghan Air Force did over the subsequent couple of years? Um, like, like, what was, do you have any sense of like what the future was for the, or, or how it kind of unfolded over the next couple of years for these units? So, I mean, when I went home, I wasn't keeping in touch as much with um, the students that I had worked with, like the, the crew chiefs and the pilots. Um, I did get some updates here and there, but it was mostly bad news. It's like, oh, did you hear about like, you know, Captain Omar, his helicopter got shut down and shot down and they all died. And, uh, you know, it was mostly updates when somebody got hurt, killed in action um, from the SMW. So that was kind of a bummer. But I knew like the, there were other English training programs on those flight lines and um, on HKIA. And so I I'd kept in touch with those English teachers and, and things seemed to be going pretty well, like in 2019, but then COVID hit. And so a lot of that training stopped during COVID. Mm -hmm. I heard about that. And then, um, I, I mean, I heard the Black Hawk program too was going pretty well down in CAF, like down in Kandahar, like the, the pilots were going through their training pipelines and they'd all be taking selfies with the Blackhawks and they, they loved them. Um, the students that were going through those training pipelines, but, um, yeah, it was pretty quick that 2021 came along and even early in 2021, everyone saw the writing on the wall. And, uh, at that time, I guess it must've been around like April or May. That's when we started hearing from contractors whether it was like the english teachers i knew or the crew the american crew chief defense contractors that i knew were like man like stuff's not looking good they want us to pack up and, and pack up from mez and calf and get back to hkia and get out of here um and they don't want us to stick about the afghans they just want us to pack our bags and get out and it was like man so it happened really fast in may and then june like bagram went lights out and it was like oh god um and that's when we started hearing from the Afghan interpreters that we had worked with across both of those flight lines. So these are guys that had worked for the U.S. companies that we worked for. Um, again, the English components were usually tucked into these huge, large maintenance and logistics contracts. So we were like a tiny, tiny component. There was huge, huge companies over there, um, Raytheon, Lidos, big, big companies. And so they hired a lot of Afghans to to work in their offices as translators, interpreters, running HR um, talking with the Afghan pilots and crew chiefs to, to organize those pipelines, like heavily dependent on these interpreters. I say that because a lot of people are like, well, you know, they weren't combat interpreters, you know, embedded out with, the, you know, a team of Green Berets, but like these guys commuted every day from Kabul, from their houses in Kabul to HKIA. People saw them going in and out of that base. And I had guys- No that secrets. Yeah. Yeah. No, the Afghans I work with, some of them would like wear disguises to come in and out of bases, but people, the people knew who they were and, um, and, I knew several of them that had applied to the special immigrant visa program 
um, while I was still in Afghanistan and when I went home, I'd monitor their cases. And like, I had to write letters of recommendation for these guys and like vouch for them. And they'd send me the death threats that they would get. So I could include that in the letter. Like this guy's legitimately, his life is on the line. His, he's been threatened by the Taliban on his way home from work in Kabul. Um, so those guys were contacting us in the summer of 2021, like June, July. And they're like, Hey man, there's rumors that the state department might get, get us flights out. Um, and so, I mean, I don't know how much time we have left, but this is where I usually start talking about like, you know, the, the fall of Kabul and what happened to these interpreters and like what, what our role in advocacy in that was like with the digital Dunkirk and Afghan evac, but the, the tragedy and all of it, like the buildup to that wasn't just like all these guys couldn't get out. These guys could have gotten out. <laughs> they could have gotten out in the summer of 2021. They knew, they knew, I mean, I mean, everybody that was paying attention and had ground knowledge knew that the Taliban was like rapidly taking over provinces. I mean, the state department had that cable that went up the chain and they they decided to ignore it because well not ignore it but they decided not to act on it and evacuate any of those interpreters early or close down the embassy because the united states didn't want to look like they had a lost faith in the afghan government so the, the embassy stayed open h kaya was operating um the interpreters that we knew were like i could leave i could leave afghanistan and then my visa gets canceled i go sneak into pakistan but how am i going to make a living i don't speak urdu i don't have family there i have to stay here because if I leave, the U.S. Embassy Kabul is going to cancel my visa. So they stayed in Afghanistan based on this rumor that the U.S. Embassy or the State Department may or may not have flights for them out in July of 2021. And they're waiting and they're waiting. The flights aren't happening. And it's like August. And they're like, man, like, I don't know if it's going to happen or not, but I can't leave. If I leave, it's like they're in this horrible situation where like they could flee to a third country where they just live in poverty for the rest of their life as beggars. Or they could hold out and think that the U.S. is going to come through for them and get them on a plane and get them out. These guys were at the finish line of that 14-step SIV process. They waited for years for these visas to come through. My guy, my closest guy to me, the interpreter I knew, like he was ready for his final interview in September of 2021. He would have been interviewing with the embassy to, to come over. He had waited for like three years. And so they they waited. They they were like, we're going to risk it. We're going to, we're going to stay and we're going to, the U.S. State Department is saying they might have flights for us. And then August 15th happened. And I, you know, I got a text Saturday, August 14th in the middle of the night going into set Sunday, August 15th for my interpreter, like, what do I do? And then it wasn't just me. This is when everybody started getting text messages, U.S. service members, U.S. veterans, anybody that had worked in Afghanistan, Afghan Americans who were talking to their family back home. Everybody's realizing Sunday when you see Mez on fire and people, like, Taliban over in the streets of Kandahar and the president getting on the plane Sunday morning and then boom, flags coming down at the embassy. And the Chinooks are flying people to the airport. And my guy's like, am I going to have my interview? And I was like, Mo, I'm texting him. I'm like, there is no interview. There's no embassy. The U.S. is gone, buddy. Like, you need to go to the airport now. Um, but by the time they get to the airport, you know, it was secured and, and people couldn't get in. So you uh, do you recall a contractor, uh, one of the American contractors training Afghan uh, helicopter pilots, a dude named Travis Peterson? Uh, I can't remember the guy's last name off the top of my head. I, I spoke to him for an article I wrote about his the, the trainees he had who got their families, bloated them in a Blackhawks, and flew to like Uzbekistan. Is he was he a? Uh, do you know who? Well, I don't want to like give too much personal information information about him, but he had worked on the SNW, and I know who you're talking about, and I and I worked very closely with him during the Afghan evac. Okay. And uh, yeah, um, so. Um, I'm pretty sure I know who you're talking about, but uh, yeah, like, so we had worked with all those SNW guys. So I just talked to you guys about the interpreters, but we're also getting text messages from like our crew chiefs and our pilots that we had worked with. And they're like, oh my God, like Miss Joan, like 
I'm outside of HKI and I can't get back in. So like the SMW, um, those guys were at work that night. A lot of them, some of them had gone home. Some of them lived in Kabul, so they could go home if they wanted to, if they weren't on duty. The Afghans that were on HKI the night that before Kabul fell, um, there was a whole element of them on both the AAF and the SMW that got an aircraft and flew um, to Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. And uh, yeah, so we knew some of those people that got on those MI-17s and, and flew out. And, um, you know, rumor has it that they they thought like, okay, like let's secure these aircraft, get as many people as we can tonight. And then we'll come back tomorrow and we'll get our families. Like we'll just get the aircraft out and like get people out and not let the Taliban like seize these aircraft and we'll come back in, we can fight. Like they didn't know the government was gonna fall and that everything was gonna fall apart. They were just like, and 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 these guys like Travis and other, you know, US military personnel and, and veterans were like getting these phone calls from like high level Afghan commanders. Like, what do we do? Like they're present. I can't, I, I try to, when people start criticizing the Afghans for what happened, like these guys are like the salt of the earth, these SMW colonels and generals. And these guys, like they flew dangerous missions. They fought and died for Afghanistan. These weren't people that wanted to lay down on their arms and leave. But when I can't, I try to tell Americans, like, imagine putting yourself in their shoes and our president ever got in a plane and flew out of our country. And our top generals had no one flying the plane. And, and, and that there were terrorists in like 98% of the country who were out for blood for them. Like, I understand why these guys were thinking what they were thinking. And I understand they were asking the questions they were asking. If I were a man in Afghanistan with a wife and kids and the Taliban coming at me, all I'm thinking is I'm not leaving them alone and alive when I'm dead in this country. So they were trying to like find a way to get the families out. And, and Travis, um, and his organization, there were several organizations that were dedicated to these special mission wing commandos and air crew and their families and getting them out operation sacred promise was a was a was a big org um, i don't know if you talked to them but they were really dedicated to those folks because they didn't fall into qualifying for the special immigration visa program these were afghan soldiers they don't qualify the only people that qualify to apply to the special immigrant visa program are interpreter translators so people that may have embedded as combat interpreters or worked on hkia or bases in mezcaf and herat for us contractors so these soldiers were just like shit out of luck they didn't qualify to get a visa and they had nobody um advocating to get them out so a lot of those us veterans um, who had worked on the smw were like we're going to set up an ngo to try to advocate for you guys um which i can if, when we do talk about the afghan adjustment act which i will plug before we we go um those guys had a huge effect on congress including smw soldiers if the afghan adjustment act is to pass in congress they would be included in the category of people that do qualify to apply for special immigrant visas because of their allegiance to the U.S. And um, I mean, people forget like Afghans weren't just fighting to build their own country. They were there because we went there and said, we want to secure this country. So it's not a hotbed of terrorism. So anybody that was fighting for a better Afghanistan and a safer Afghanistan was fighting for a better America and a, and a safer America. And these guys, these Afghan colonels and these Afghan generals on the SMW, like again, salt of the earth dudes that like it was an honor and a privilege to know. And the ones that got out were, were thankful that they did. And um, they're going to make America a better place by being here and using their skill set here as well. So um, what what is what is the Afghanistan Adjustment Act? Yes, I am glad you asked now that I plugged it myself. But okay, so. um, So fast forward from like August 15th, uh, Kabul Falls, uh, the evacuations going on at the end of of August evacuation stops, whoever gets out, gets out, whoever didn't, didn't. Um, But a lot of these organizations and NGOs that had been trying to get Afghans out 
um, that weren't able to before those last C-17s took off at the end of August, they kind of pivoted um, in September and October, November of last year to trying to find other ways to support Afghans. Like if we can't get you out of Afghanistan, we're still going to find ways to advocate to get you out and find pathways to the United States. That's number one. Number two is for the Afghans that did get here, it's really important that we make sure that they they land on a solid foot. The United States took in 80,000 Afghan refugees last year. That's more than the United States usually takes in in a year from all countries in the world. So that's a huge strain on our, uh, our, our federal resources that are allotted to, to resettlement agencies and caseworkers that are supporting all these Afghans. A lot of Afghans lived in hotels for months last year waiting to get ha- permanent housing and, and um, you know things like financial support and, and job training and things like that. So I say all that is the Afghan Adjustment Act was a product of ad hoc organizations coming together, all these volunteers, mostly combat veterans or civilian volunteers that had worked to try to get Afghans out of Afghanistan last year and were not successful, did not give up the fight. They turned it around and they went to Capitol Hill and they said, we're going to write some legislation and we're going to advocate for this legislation. And what we're going to do is we're going to make sure that we continue to fund, um, like advocate for the funding of these resettlement agencies here for the Afghans that did make it, but also make sure the folks that are still stuck in Afghanistan, that there are pathways to get here, expanding the categories of special immigrant visa applicants so that more people can apply, making sure that program's still operational. Um, so the Afghan Adjustment Act was like, it's it's kind of like the continuation of the evacuation and, and it didn't end when the last C-17s took off. There are still Afghans that, you know, we're trying to get out of Afghanistan and for the ones that made it here, we want to give them a fair shot. The other thing that the Afghan Adjustment Act um, does, like it's, it's pretty quick. It's like a one pager. If you Google it, Afghan Adjustment Act, like it's just a few bullet points. And it's basically like expanding those categories of who can apply to the special immigration visa program based on who was our ally over there, whether you're soldiers or interpreters. But number two, making sure the folks that did get here have permanent legal status in the United States. Most of those Afghan refugees that we saw come over last year, the 80,000 that processed through all the military bases, um, Fort Dix, Fort McCoy. I worked up at Fort McCoy for a time. It was a bracelet a little Afghan girl gave me in my English class at Fort McCoy. Um, those folks, they were given a what's called a humanitarian parole visa. It's the quickest thing that the uh, DHS and, and State Department can issue to a refugee. And so they were all, we call it, we say paroled into the United States. Um, so they could be here on some kind of legal status, but parolee status is only good for two years. Once that expires, those folks have no legal standing here. Um, so the Afghan Adjustment Act, like the Cuban Adjustment Act and the Vietnamese Adjustment Act before it, is basically an act that would grant these folks immediate permanent status if it passed, mm-hmm. right? So like when the Cubans and Vietnamese refugees came over here, again, it was like the, they don't necessarily qualify all for asylum, but we're not going to send them back to the country. We're not going to send these Afghans back next year when they're legal status expires. We need to have some kind of on paper legal status for them. So the Afghan Adjustment Acts pass. Two big takeaways are the Afghans that are here are safe and permanent legal residents. And number two, the people that are left behind in Afghanistan have a better shot of getting here. And that's why it's really important that people call their senators and their representatives and ask for the passage of this act. You don't need to know much about it. You don't have to have been to Afghanistan, but you can tell people it's important that we honor commitments to our allies. We make sure that people that are here have a fair shot and making their life in America. We are better that they are here with us now. We you know pilots that are flying, fighting fires on the West Coast. You know, like, I mean, these people have a lot to offer, especially the guys that worked in the military. Yeah. So um, if that act passes, like it would make a lot of us and a lot of Afghans very happy. Yeah. Um, we had a question, but actually you answered it. So, uh, okay. yeah. Um, so tell us, so you, I mean, Fairly quickly after the withdrawal, 
on August 24th, you had an article published, right? Yeah. And how did that come about? So, um, yeah, thanks for asking that question. Um, cause I do, I, I would like to touch on moral injury too. And that kind of came about with the, with the writing that I did. So, um, you mentioned Travis earlier. Uh, so on August 15th, when we started getting all those texts for those, from those Afghans, like all of us at home in America, like around the country, we're like forming, um, impromptu Facebook chat groups, WhatsApp chat groups, signal chat groups, like all trying to come together and be like, Hey, we've got all these guys texting us. Like, let's all try to work together. Um, in a singular fashion to organize their visas, their paperwork, and try to get them into the into the airport so they can get out. And a lot of it came down to um, veterans like using the leverage they had or, or trying to pull strings and like get some of these Afghans out um, based on who they knew that was down at the airfield at HKIA. And um, so like we were in these groups, I got pulled in um, only as an English teacher because it was kind of funny. So most of the groups were like, you know, combat veterans or the guys that had flown with the SW fleet. And, um, you know, it was a lot of service members and, and, and veterans, but I got a call from a guy. He's like, you taught English classes. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, Hey man, we got like all these guys trying to get into the airport and they got like the lists of names, right. Afghan names are three. Um, like your first name, your father's name, your family name. And I had had to memorize all these rosters when I was an English teacher. And they're like, hey, we just need help. People look at these rosters and say like, did this guy work for the SMW or is he full of shit? Because there were a lot of people trying to get out at the same time right. and claiming to have worked on the SMW and claiming to have been an Afghan ally. And so like, you know, like, can you comb through these lists and help us sift through? So that's how I got pulled into Digital Dunkirk was like trying to help organize these rosters and, and flight manifests and things like that. And so what I qu quickly realized, like after we finished doing that was like, I don't have any pull on H. Kaya. Like I can't, I don't have any, like, I'm not friends with the, you know, commander of the 82nd, but you know, people were making phone calls down to the airfield. You got to get my guy and you got to get my guy. And I was like, look guys, that's not my skill set. But um, when I get feisty and I get angry, like I, I speak out. So I'm going to go write some op-eds <laughs> and like, I'll circle back with you guys. And um, what I thought I could do is a lot of people were going to the press at the time to to write op-eds and to go on, you know, CNN and Fox News and try to elevate awareness of what was going on. And so I was like, look, I'm just going to try to focus on writing right now because I think that that's how I can be most effective. I, I really can't help you guys out. Like, I don't have military connections, but if you guys want to go work those avenues, I'm going to go do this. And um, I, the important thing for us was that the American people knew the truth. Because at the time, like the administration was obviously going on like a big public relations binge of like, this is a really awful way to withdraw and leave Afghanistan. But like, you know, blaming on the Afghans or saying these guys didn't matter. They didn't want to fight for their country. I mean, the press secretary, like giggling at the podium, like, you know, being all smirky, like these Afghans just didn't want to fight for their country. I'll never forget that look on her face. And I, that's what I wanted to throw a brick through my TV watching that press conference. Because, you know, who's watching the press conferences on CNN and Fox News. The Afghans uh -huh. and their interpreters. So uh -huh. English, is, English is really good. Uh -huh. So they know when they're being insulted and they know when people are lying about them. These are guys that tried to get through Taliban checkpoints during that evacuation and got shot at. Uh -huh. Saw people die in the streets, walk through sewage ditches to get up to those gates and get turned away. Uh -huh. Be told, we don't care. You don't have an American passport. We can't let you in. And it, that's no fault of the Marines guarding that airport. They had to secure that airfield. But these uh -huh. guys were like, well, you know what the hell? I worked on that base. That's, uh -huh. that's my office uh -huh. for you guys. Uh -huh. We work for you. And now you won't let us in. And we have to stand at gunpoint while other people who have no allegiance to the U.S. like, you know, bribe off NDS guards and, and, and get on those C-17s. Like it was this humiliation, like totally undignified experience. And I say all that because like this was the anger building me was like people are getting on TV, Pentagon, White House. Department of State spokespersons and saying like these guys like this is just war this is the Afghans just didn't want it and it's like 
or they're not trying to go to the airport. If somebody needs, if somebody's an ally, they can just go to the airport and get in. And I'm like, dude, my friends on WhatsApp, I have a text from this Afghan who's his kids just saw a woman get shot and killed and he can't get into the airport. So I was obviously like, I'm still pretty, I can get pretty amped about it, but I was so angry. And like, I'm watching, we're, we're all watching these um, press conferences, like us in these volunteer groups, the Afghan evac groups, the digital Dunkirk, and we're texting each other. Like, can you believe they just said that on TV? Like, do you think the American people think that the Afghans didn't want to fight? We need to tell them the truth. So like, that's why I started writing the op-eds that first one that was like breaking hearts and minds. I think that was the one that came out on the 24th. And it was just like, man, like we have the chance to do right by these guys. We're not out yet. Like, let's not screw them over. Like, I, I can't believe this is how we're going to treat people that stood by us and risked their lives for us. And like, what are they going to think if we leave? And then that turned into like, uh, like mother Jones called up and I did a, I sat for an interview with them and then, uh, CNN called up. I was like, I'm not going to go on the air. Like, <laughs> cause like, um, they called for an interview and I had not slept or like eaten for like two weeks. And I was like a hot mess. Cause I just was, I mean, we were not sleeping. We were trying to answer every text. The daytime for us was nighttime cobble, but then at like midnight American time, all the Afghans are texting. Like they just woke up like, all right, should I go to the airport? What's going on? So we did not sleep, but CNN called up and they were like, Hey, do you want to come on and talk about the SIVs? And I was like, I can't be on TV right now. Like I can't even like eat food. I'm like a mess, but will you interview my interpreters? I think the American people should hear from them. So they did. Like, it was really cool. They, they um, anonymously like interviewed them and had them on the air, you know? So like we got, we gained some exposure and, um, and I, I'm not just myself. I mean, there were like thousands of Americans like writing op-eds, going on TV, going in the media saying like, hold on a second. Like these Afghans like stood by us and we need to do right by them. Like, yes, this is a clusterfuck. It's not going to look good for the administration, but like to, to, to hell with it. Like if we're the American people, we expect people to think of us as the moral ethical beacon in the world. We need to do right by these people. And, um, and enough people were like sounding that or, or, you know, trying to counter that narrative that the Afghans just didn't care to fight for their country. And, um, I think why I, why I keep talking about this and why I think it's important is that the fact that there are still flights for special immigrant visa holders and the, the fact that the state department is still trying to evacuate them is a testament to the people that did speak out at the time and said like no we're not gonna let this die you didn't send us to war for two decades to go build rapport with partner forces and build really deep human relationships to tell us to just trash it because like it's gonna look bad for you guys no absolutely not so um you know i i, I kudos to everybody that's that stayed in that fight it was a it was a grueling four months like people were like like losing marriages losing jobs just to stay up and try to save one more afghan family like people really like really really struggled and um and that's why like i transitioned well when the afghans couldn't get out and the evacuation ended i was like well i don't know what else i have to yell about but i did i mean i scorched congress held these like ridiculous hearings on the afghanistan withdrawal and then and nothing came from that either so i wrote some op-eds about that and then finally transitioned into like hey like i'm working with all these u.s veterans and service members here who are like absolutely devastated and nobody's talking to them nobody's talking to them about this shit that they're dealing with and mm -hmm. so that was the impetus for writing about moral injury so the first few articles i wrote last year were all about like you know honor our commitments to our allies oh you didn't want to do that well you're gonna have to sit here and look at your look at your troops in the face and, and say something to them so i i wrote an article that was geared towards military leadership i doubt i don't know if military leadership read it but that was uh um, I got one article published um, that was basically just trying to highlight what moral injury is and um, what all these troops were struggling with. Again, like I talked to you guys before the interview, you take an oath to, to say you're never going to leave anyone behind. And then your leadership is saying, we want you to leave them behind and right. not talk about it. Mm -hmm. 
Right. And so that was a, a deep reckoning that a lot of people were going through. And so um, that was a, that got, I think stars and stripes ran that in July, that article. Um, and then I wrote a little follow-up on a couple months later on the year anniversary, just to circle back with some of those veterans that I worked with, see how they were doing. And like I told you guys, I think people are now in a much different place than they were last year. Last year, it was like, if I don't get this Afghan out, like, I don't even want to live. Like, I feel like such a failure. Like, what was this war for? And questioning everything, the war, their identity and their character. And it was like, man, you guys are good people. Like, it it pained me to see people asking those questions. Right. And and, and, I mean, I think that a lot of people, for a lot of people, for a lot of civilians, they look and they go, oh, well, you know, the veterans are upset that the war is over or that that America lost the war and they felt like they fought for all these, this time for nothing. And that might be part of it. But a lot of it was because in this war, so many veterans did have such close relationship with the indigenous, you know, yeah. uh, you know, shoulder to slept, shoulder, man. shoulder to shoulder, you know, fought and died together. Yep. And that's what and, yeah. I, I, Jack, I'll have to go back and read what you wrote when you talked to Travis. But I mean, he's one of those guys that was saying, you know, like some of them buried more Afghans than Americans. Yeah. You know, th- those are their brothers in arms. And um, I mean, they were out like fighting with them. Like, yeah. I'll put English it. with some guys and like flew around in some helicopter training flights. But these guys were like fighting with these guys and yeah. they had their backs. And like, so yeah, it, it's really hard shoulder to shoulder, by with and through. And then, it, and then as this was all going on on TV, it was just like, those things don't matter right and, now. Like, and then for them to be painted as, oh, you know, they don't want to fight because the Americans are gone. Yeah. It's like, that. that's not how this worked at all. Can you- I mean, there. yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, I, I was just going to ask, can you tell us what what is moral injury? That's not a term that's bandied about much and people don't use it that often. Yeah. So um, I'm glad you asked that because I did kind of um, gloss over that. But uh, so we like to make the distinction between PTSD and moral injury because they're, they're two different things. And, and and folks can struggle with both or one or the other. Um, but unlike PTSD, which is uh, endurance or witness to a traumatic event that 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 impacts you psychologically, moral injury is um, something that impacts on somebody's character or identity. And so it's usually when a transgression has occurred in regards to who somebody feels like they are and what they stand for, right? Um, so with Afghanistan and the, the, the withdrawal, um, again, it, w- it was that a lot of people felt like they were being asked to abandon people in real time. So I took an oath not to leave anybody behind, but now I'm being asked to do it and not really explicitly asked to do it, but just expected to do it by military leadership who's not really taking accountability for that. And when I spoke to US veterans and the groups that I was working with, and I was like, what do you feel? Like, what would you like leadership to say? And it's like, they're like, just acknowledge it. Nobody, there's no national will to have this conversation for leadership to step up and say, we understand what we're asking you to do and the pain that you're feeling. They don't have to use the word loss. Military doesn't use that term. We didn't lose this war. I don't know if anyone like got up and said that, but at least acknowledge what people are going through. Oh, you can use whatever semantics you need to, but acknowledge it. I think what hurt a lot of veterans was nobody wanted to acknowledge it. And not only that, but like, you got to remember like these Afghans that fought alongside US service members, like they don't have the WhatsApp number for John Kirby at the Pentagon or um, you know Jake Sullivan at the state department or, um, you know, Mark Milley or Joe Biden, they have the phone numbers for us and for these veterans and for the guys they worked with and fought with. So they're texting them. Like, am I getting out? Can you help me? And so these veterans were having to t- send the text messages, like 
and they avoided it for months. We kept trying to say like, we're still working. We're going to get you out. Maybe there's a way, maybe we can. And then finally, like October, November, we started having to send the text. And I had to, I had to take the phone from some people and write the text. You're not getting out. It's over. Imagine what that does to like a U.S. service member having to type that text or make that phone call to their Afghan buddy who they fought with and say like, I can't get you out. It's over. Um, that was so devastating for so many of them. And that's what causes the moral injury. Like I'm doing something that I said I would never do. Does that make me a bad person? I, you know, Afghanistan was my life. I deployed six times. It's This is who I am. And so they're having this like identity crisis and having to reckon with that. Meanwhile, leadership's not acknowledging what they're asking them to do. And they're having to sit there in the middle of the night after three months of like not sleeping and text their Afghan and say like, I, you might die and I can't do anything to help you. And so that was like just a, a huge ask, I think, of military leadership to, to put people in that position and, and not really acknowledge it in any tangible, open, um, big way. And I talked about that in the article, you know, like, um, it's, it's just, it left people in the dark to handle it by themselves. And then it's like veterans day rolled around in November. And I remember the, you know, the president saying like, well, you know, I, this is a really tough time for veterans, like talk to your battle buddy. And it's not just him and people, it's, you know, Biden saying that, but like, you know, time eternal, what do military leaders say? Like reach out for help, talk to your battle buddy. It's like, Hey, this is this moral injury in the case of Afghanistan was partially caused by military leadership's failure, failure to acknowledge the position they put U.S. troops and veterans in. So it's incumbent upon military leadership to step forward and acknowledge that. It doesn't have to be, if the Pentagon's not going to do it, you can still do it at like the team level, the unit level. So many of these guys were struggling, you know, in, in these teams and these units. Um, there was an article in Military Times about, um, I think, first group at Fort Bragg. And like, these guys had a terrible time of it. You know, third, and third had, group guys, I think, who they were like sleeping on cots inside the office yeah. on phone calls. All yeah, day, yeah, so. that was it. Yep, there was a picture of that, and they they brought in a psychologist, and they had like a record number of guys sign up for 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 sessions because it was just like these guys are struggling, like, and they should be. I mean, a, right? What was it? The one quote in there when the guy was like, you know, like my job is to liberate the oppressed, not to oppress the liberated. Like, I feel like I just undid twenty years, and I I can't imagine what that must be like for right. somebody like that. You know, right? And so, um, you know, I I, I still think that. Is it going to make all that pain go away if somebody were to like acknowledge it? Maybe not, but it, it's not, it can't make it worse. And it, and it, I just think it speaks to leadership when you're going forward. Now we're pivoting from like counterterrorism to, to great power, you know, and, and it, it's still going to be allegiance and allyships. And if you want these guys who you've tasked with um, being the leaders of, you know, indigenous approach or partner building partner force capacity, like you're going to go back to some of these groups that deployed to Afghanistan, you, they need to trust you that you're going to have their back from start to finish and i i feel like the finish here they didn't have their back you know? it, it, so. it also affects it also affects potential future partner forces in the sense of well yeah. we saw what they just did with to somebody who fought with them for 20 years why are we going to put our faith in the americans to take care of us when all this is over you or know, to be there yeah, I, I i i don't want to say i disagree with with what you're saying but i'm also a bit it's not pessimistic. I'm a bit cynical. I have never known a beleaguered people to turn down F-16 airstrikes or American weapons. I, I agree with that. Um, yeah. But you're, I think you're right that it does cause damage. Um, but I, I think that there's there's something even sadder I, I, in, in, in maybe the statement I just made. <laughs> no, I, I agree with you no. in, in the sense that we will still get those partner forces, but there's a difference between your partner force being there to the last bullet when things aren't going well yeah. and your partner force turned tailing because they don't like, they don't I, have I, faith. I think, I think what you're also speaking to there is like on the tactical level. Yeah. Um, 
versus you know some, maybe some of the big picture like geo strategic level of it that you know the, exactly what we've been talking about here like it's a of course that affects soldiers on the ground be they american or partner forces right and and i think you know i think one of the challenges with the situation is we say american forces and afghan forces oh you know americans are upset because we left afghan forces behind i don't know that, that really resonates with the american public the simple fact is right. americans left friends and and brothers in arms behind yeah. Co you know they they that's what they left behind it, and you know and they had those relationships they had fought together bled together and and so for it just to be painted like it was it was a vacation and we left like we left these people that behind that we met on this vacation that you know that's not the case they left friends behind right couple... and that's what like we we tried to keep it as i mean it's not our job as the american military to like scoop up foreign military when things go south and, and it doesn't right. work out but i think like our our my personal issue and a lot of our issue was like with the messaging that was going on like yeah. for sure there are like ana units that did like hand their weapons to the taliban but sure i mean there's anecdotal evidence like both ways of like people that folded and people that didn't but uh, you know to go back to what we were saying earlier about like us war strategy in afghanistan like why did that happen it's not that these people i don't i don't, I don't think i met anybody in afghanistan that was in uniform like afghan military that was like i don't care if my country falls like none of them wanted that right um but there's reasons why like I, I highlighted in one of my articles that like in the summer i think it was a group of afghan special commandos got rounded up on video and shot live this is who your enemy is they're not off most of the enemies we fight as americans are across the oceans like far far away um these people were dealing with it you know it's counterinsurgency they're at they're they're in their streets at their back door ready to kill them and their families so right. i think they were making different calculations and you know the afghan military wasn't even paying some of its soldiers so i you know there's yeah, yeah there are people down their arms and didn't want to fight the taliban but uh, we also knew people that did so right like, i i, I saw it with the with the iraqis that i trained and um hey if your government isn't resupplying you with bullets and food and water and gasoline uh you, you can i mean it's just you can only fight so long before right. you have to run. Yeah. Um, and that's yeah, just the reality it, of yeah. that in Russia. <laughs> yeah. But um it, to your point earlier about like, you know, people's allegiance to us in the future, there was a great a war on the rocks ran an article like right around the time of Kabul falling about this, you know, do we have to worry about people wanting to align with us in the future? And it was basically this author arguing like exactly what you said, Jack, which was like, people are still gonna work with us. Like, we don't need to worry about that. At the time reading it, I was like, how dare you? Like, no one's ever gonna wanna work with America again. But I reread it and I was like, mm, yeah, no, there's some truth to that. Like this was a, a devastating but unique circumstance. And I, I do think depending on- um, Well, you know, yeah, it, it's, it's sad. <laughs> I mean, after we've been down this road, uh, you know, South Vietnam and the Kurds a handful of times, and the afghans um it, the the even the the sadder narrative is that in fact yes we can do it all over again and all of the people whether they're montagnards or kurds or afghans who get rounded up and killed in the aftermath of that are really just the collateral damage of you know political decisions that are made way above all of our heads and in yeah. that sense um you know as bad as it sounds and, and the big picture, no one really cares. Like it, they, they don't really matter. And that's why you mean at the like executive. At the, and that's why in Vietnam yeah. it was people like Jim Morris. Yeah, you know, guy like yeah. SF guys who got the Montagnards brought back here. In this case, it was people like Joan and Travis um, that got Afghans brought back to America. Um, 
but and picked up the slack where our government you know failed to do the right thing um and, and that's that's to me that's an even sadder um narrative that without in fact we can keep doing this over and over again when we know we shouldn't yeah uh, Joan, there's a couple questions in here for you. Uh, yeah. How many Afghans are still trying to get out of Afghanistan, and how can we help with the effort? Uh, how can we help out with the effort to get them out, be it volunteering or donating or anything like that? Um, that's a really great question. I mean, there's just like hundreds of thousands of Afghans that want to leave. Um, I, specifically with the SIV program, there's there's tens of thousands of folks in the queue. Um, so again, uh, I mentioned earlier, if, if folks really want to want to help out. Um, calling your congressional representation and, and advocating for the passage of the Afghan Adjustment Act would make sure that those flights out of Afghanistan um, still continue and that we're able to evacuate um, interpreters that that work for the U.S. mission. So that's one way. Um, there, are all, there are NGOs that are at work in Afghanistan, like the World Food Program is still over there doing great work. They're always raising money. Um, so, you know, you can donate to international organizations that are providing food and shelter for Afghans. Um, and then stateside, I always tell people there's such a need even a year out um, from a lot of these Afghan refugees resettling in the U.S. Um, people need help all the time. So I mentioned like way in the beginning of this podcast that I had worked in refugee resettlement um, prior. And most of those organizations rely heavily on volunteers. So what we saw a lot of Americans do last fall and, and the, through the winter from all walks of life, political parties, Americans came together in overwhelming numbers to like basically volunteer to help Afghans resettle. Some people adopted Afghan families, but um, you can Google like in your wherever you're from, you can Google your local refugee resettlement agency if you just type in like um, refugee resettlement Chicago or refugee resettlement New York, like a bunch of orgs will pop up. I think I, I think New York is IRC. There's like three big orgs, like the IRC, Catholic Charities and um, Lutheran Services. There are a bunch of organizations that are federally contracted to provide resettlement services to refugees. And so um, when the refugees come through, they get assigned like a caseworker at those agencies and they get job training and English training. But a lot of that, again, is done by volunteers in the local community. So it's people literally like picking up the phone or emailing those agencies and saying like, hey, I got a few hours a week to 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 come hang out. And um, you could I mean, that's how I started my English teaching career was volunteering to teach those refugees English and citizenship. And it was I, I can promise you the most rewarding experience of your life. Um Part of my job also is sometimes to just go sit with refugees in their apartments and like drink tea. I know you guys got the Ethiopian worship service upstairs. Some of my favorite students to go visit were Ethiopian asylees and refugees because they'd make you the best coffee. But um, sometimes just sitting with refugees and um, making them feel not alone. Depression is a huge problem for refugees that come over here. It's really tough when, again, when you don't have the language and you're in a new country and trying to get your feet on the ground. Um, a lot of people can feel very isolated, especially going through the trauma of your country falling to a terrorist regime and leaving half your family behind. And now you're in a country where you don't have a job <laughs> or speak the language. Like there's, I'm trying to say there's such a need for, for volunteers to continue to, to support the Afghan families that did make it here. So whether that's you, you want to help teach them or give them rides to doctor's appointments or um, go sit with them and, and just listen to them, you know, tell you about their tell you about their culture, tell you about a good memory from home and, and make them feel like they're welcome here. Um, those resettlement agencies would be more than happy to have your, your volunteer support. And, um, and, and those agencies, even if you don't have time to volunteer or you're like, I don't know if I could do that, um, you can donate to them. So they're always taking uh, donations, clothing donations, food donations, financial donations. So there are so many, so many ways to help. Um, AfghanEvac.org also has a lot of this stuff um, spelled out for people that are interested in 
um, advocating for the passage of the Afghan Adjustment Act or continuing to work to support Afghan refugees here. So afghanevac.org is, is a great link that I like to send people to. That that was like this umbrella organization of all those NGOs last year mm -hmm. that were trying mm -hmm. to the Afghans out, like veteran run and operated NGOs. A lot of them came together and coalesced under this coalition called the Afghan EVAC Coalition. And those folks have done wonderful, wonderful work getting that Afghan Adjustment Act written, and hopefully we can get it passed. But they also have a lot of resources for folks that did make it over here. Uh, no One Left Behind is another great organization, no one left behind.org. Um, they work specifically more focused on the SIV, um, the immigrant, uh, special immigrant visa folks that came through, but they do a lot of work in resettlement as well. So um, thanks for letting me list all that stuff. Of course, <laughs> and do, do you said that all that is uh, going to is in the links? And links in the description. Another okay. question we got, is there an effort to ensure parolees are extended and identify accessible visa options for parolees while the Afghan Adjustment Act is pending? Oh, that's such a good question. <laughs> this is like geeking out on legalese. Um, so a lot of Afghan parolees, when they, they first realized that they might not have permanent legal status, wanted to go down the asylee route, which is applying for asylum, which they can do, but um, asylum cases are backlogged months in this country too. And it usually involves getting an immigration lawyer involved. And I don't know, it's, it's such a case by case basis. Some resettlement agencies are working with Afghans to, and they have like local immigration attorneys that might do pro bono work to try to help people apply, apply for asylum. I've heard other cases of Afghans, like in, like I have a friend in Florida, for example, um, a crew chief that had flown on the SMW, but he like nobody's helping him at all and he can't seem to get any help and he's like should i pay an immigration lawyer to get me an asylum case or try to get me an siv case and i was like look buddy like we're gonna advocate for the passage of this act and those afghans started calling congress to <laughs> start to pass this act because like they want this legal status so i i think um i i don't want to I, I can't give people legal advice but i would just be cautious if you're paying an immigration attorney that's a private service and they might promise the world and then not be able to get somebody an asylum um uh, like an asylum approval, mm -hmm. uh, which would basically asylum isn't like a permanent legal status either. You still have to like within your your year of asylee status apply for a legal permanent residence green card. So um, I think it's more important that we all focus on like getting this act passed and making sure the like Congress understands the importance of passing this act. But in the meanwhile, um, I would say that um, redirect folks back to like if this person it sounds like this person might know an afghan like in this situation that might need some some legal advice or legal help it's always first step is to go back to the resettlement agency and the caseworker and explain your problem a lot of afghans um that i know that have resettled here like even if it's i need food or money like are afraid to ask their caseworker again it's a face-saving culture and there's a lot of shame in asking for help and so right. for a lot of them it's been coaching them on you can ask this is your right to ask for this. This is the U.S. has this federal resettlement program in place to get you on your feet if you need something. Um, here's how you ask for it. Um, so I'd say first talk to the caseworker and the resettlement agency, and then there there might be immigration attorneys locally who do pro bono work. And if they want to help an Afghan out, great. But I just always caution people to be careful. Um, unfortunately, there are bad actors in the world, and there are a lot of people out there trying to like help Afghans and sure. like, give me this much money and I'll get you a visa. And it's like, no, that's not how it works. Right. And the Afghans can find out the hard way. The little money they have, they're going to dump into an attorney that might not be able to help them. So I, I yeah. I was just saying the problem is, is it, it, I mean, we all fall for stuff like that. We, we had all the COVID fraud stuff, but particularly coming from a country like Afghanistan, where you do pay those bribes and, or you, that money to get things done. 
it, it sure, doesn't, yeah. yeah, it doesn't seem outside the norm for for them. Yeah, yeah, and then if somebody's like, "I'm here to help you," they're like, "Oh, okay, like maybe you're with the agency, like the resettlement agency," right. and they just they don't know. And I, so yeah, I, I mean, they're going through their own culture shock right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm happy when like the Afghans I know like reach out and they're like somebody emailed me this and I'm like dude that's a scam like no <laughs> or you know please don't call that person back like they're not going to help you um yeah. I'd rather have give them the skills they need to navigate the resettlement agency and the res- there's so many free resources in the community dedicated to refugee resettlement I'm like you, you don't have to pay for most of this stuff right if somebody's trying to get money from you like mm-mm. right so yeah. Joan, uh, I know we've kind of kept you for a, quite a while here. Are there any, I, I mean, where can people find you? Are there any like final uh, thoughts that you want to uh, address or sum up or anything that you want to get out there? Um, Where can they find me? I don't even know where I am these days, but um, I online, um, I, I do have, a, I'm on Twitter and I have my link tree there with uh, last year I posted a bunch of those articles on there about um, the Afghan special immigration visa interpreters and, and moral injuries. So that stuff's online there. Um, but yeah, like I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I'll continue to advocate for these issues and write about them. So if folks have questions, they can definitely reach out on there and I can answer what questions I can. And if not, I know plenty of people in this, this scene trying to support these Afghans that I can, I can connect them with. So I'd be more than happy to do that. Um, as for final notes, um, a note of good news that came in between when you guys invited me on in the show and tonight is that my interpreter is in Doha, safe with his family, and made it out of Kabul about two weeks ago. Oh, that's fantastic, right? Yeah, yeah. So I got that. I got that text. Like, uh, I'm down here in Florida. I'm, I'm helping my mom out right now, and Hurricane Ian came through, and was, we were like about to lose power, and I got this signal message on Signal. It was a selfie. I, I told him, I was like, when you get on that plane in Kabul, I want a selfie with you and your family. Cause we've been waiting a year for that, for that call. And, and he, uh, state department got him out. So he's That's safe fantastic. in Doha with his family. And, um, hopefully in the next few months he will be here. Um, he's processing in Doha right, right now, but right. Um, oh, don't lose hope guys. Anyone yeah. out there with Afghan still in Kabul, like it, it's, it's the long game for sure. But, um, but, but there's hope and there's, there's people working in the shadows right now. Like there's a lot of really good people, veterans and, and civilian volunteers working in silent service and, and, ultimate quiet professionals out there doing the Lord's work in the shadows and, and trying to make sure that we honor our word. And I'm very proud of them. That's jo- the Afghan that folks. Joan, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate what you are doing and, and what everyone else is uh, doing on this. Um, actually, I think in December, we're going to have Scott Mann on to talk about uh, Operation Pineapple and all that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yep. I haven't, I haven't gotten that book, but, um, but I've read some of the excerpts and, uh, yeah, they were, I mean, those, those guys were really in it. <laughs> so yeah. it'd be and, really fascinating. Uh, on Friday, this Friday, we're going to have, uh, John Fox and, uh, Baz, Dr. Baz, uh, on the show. They are the authors of America's war in Syria, uh, fighting with Kurdish anti-ISIS forces. So Baz was uh, academic and John is a former Marine. These were two guys who uh, volunteered with the YPG in Syria to fight yeah. ISIS. So we're going to have, uh, John will be here in studio. Baz will be remote. I hear he's not really allowed to enter the United States because of some uh, activities. Um, but <laughs> he will be remote. Uh, so we will be talking to both of those gents uh, on Friday. Um, and I hope to see some of you guys there. Um, so Joan, again, thank you, Joan. Really thank appreciate you so it. much. Yeah, we really thank you guys appreciate for giving it. me this platform. Thank you so Absolutely, much. Absolutely, anytime. Yeah.
Yeah, and um, look, you've got stamina. We outlasted the uh, the the revival. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was kind of hoping things would like kick up when we get to join in. <laughs> yeah. Well, soon. Well, yeah. Come uh, come well, visit we... us in New York next yeah. time and and yeah. get the full experience. I'm, I'm glad we got to do this. Though. I'm glad we didn't get drowned out by uh by this by the spirit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. D, are you still pissed? Okay. All right. Good. I'm D, glad. D, his face isn't red anymore. All right. Get that backup beer for D. All right. <laughs> th- th- yeah. Thank you, D. Thank you, Joan. And uh, we'll see you guys. Thanks, on everybody. Okay. Round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact Harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 